This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, we learned anything in expansion and realignment. We learned that Television drives the conversation. Television driving the bus in college football. Well, we have full TV ratings for week one. And some things jumped out at me. First of all, huge win by Fox. Not just Colorado in their win over TCU that aired on Fox at 12 o'clock. Their big noon kickoff nationally. 9 a.m., our time in the Pacific time zone drew 3.8 rating and 7.3 million viewers. Number two watched game in America. Big bet by Fox on Colorado. Because if Colorado had stunk it up, if Colorado had been terrible in that week one game against TCU, Fox would have been stuck with them not just for one week, but for two. They'll be on Fox again This week, big bet by the network. Fox going all in on Colorado early and looking pretty smart for doing it so far. Will they continue to look smart? We had some of that discussion on yesterday's show. I feel like the audience is a little bit split on whether or not Colorado is going to be able to keep this up. Will they continue to win? Will they arrive at Autzen Stadium in week four undefeated? Coach Prime against Dan Lanning, who, by the way, I mean, I don't think Lanning necessarily called out Deion Sanders or Shadour Sanders or Travis Hunter. And in fact, I saw Dan Lanning on Media Day, Pac-12 Media Day, interact with Travis Hunter a little bit. He recruited him when he was the D coordinator at Georgia. And there was this little exchange that I witnessed because I had Dan Lanning late in the day. I had him as his very last interview of the day, and I also had uh, Travis Hunter and Shadour Sanders late in the day, as many people know. And uh, there was this exchange kind of off to the side as Dan Lanning was waiting to come on my show with us. I had Travis Hunter right in front of Dan Lanning on the schedule of events for the day. So I was going to get Shadour Sanders, Travis Hunter, and then Dan Lanning. And Dan Lanning had nothing before my interview for about 15 or 20 minutes. So he was kind of just standing off to the side. And he and I were talking before the Shador Sanders interview and then after the Shador Sanders interview. And so Travis Hunter was coming into the into the radio studio and Lanning and Hunter had this exchange. And I kind of watched it. And uh, it was you know obvious that they knew each other. It was obvious that they were fond of each other. And then I later found out that Lanning had recruited Travis Hunter when he was at Georgia and I thought to myself Dan Lanning's no dummy like you know if things don't work out for Travis Hunter at Colorado 
um, you know, he's obviously going, hey, you know, I'm happy for you, good to see you, all that stuff. But I also think in there and buried in there is the idea that, hey, there's a transfer portal out there, and if you're ever looking for a place to go, I want to maintain a relationship with you. But um, I don't think Dan Lanning necessarily called out the Colorado regime. They He just kind of called out Colorado, didn't he, when he said, you know, hey, uh, you know, what have they won? You know, Colorado's leaving the conference? Not a big reaction. I mean, I'm trying to remember what, what they won to affect this conference. I don't remember. You remember them winning anything? I don't remember them winning anything. Don't remember them winning anything. Um, <laughs> uh, you tell me, Stephen, will Colorado use that as motivation? Will they use that as bulletin board material? 100% they will. Um, and, I, and I agree with you, though. I don't think Dan Lane was necessarily calling out Shador or Coach Prime or Travis Hunter or necessarily even Colorado. Like, I think he was just telling the truth. Like, they haven't won anything. But I definitely think that, you know, just watching Colorado and the way they work and the way Coach Prime has been working this whole offseason into week one, he's definitely going to use it as motivation. And they're, 100%. Using, they're using it. Everything is motivation right now. It's They're playing as them versus the world. When you know it seems like a lot of cultural world is on their side right now, that you know the most talked about team, and everyone wants them to win, but they're still playing the card of you know there's a lot of haters, a lot of doubters. So of course they're going to use that when they play Oregon and Eugene, uh, even though I don't think Dan Landing said anything wrong in his statement. We figured something out too about Deion Sanders, and I, and if you didn't know this already, he is often looking for an opportunity to kind of ham it up, looking for an opportunity for the spotlight. Several media members who understand. Uh, the principles involved in that exchange uh, after last uh, Saturday's big win by Colorado understand that that uh, Coach Prime uh, was doing his best Coach Prime impression by going after Ed Werder, the ESPN reporter, who was in the room. It turns out, like, given the full context of it, Werder never actually wrote anything about Colorado. He never wrote anything about Deion Sanders. He never wrote anything about Coach Prime. And uh, the fact of the matter is that Ed Werder and Coach Prime have known each other for years. And a couple of national reporters who cover college football and are familiar with the Dallas Cowboys under, you know, pointed out that Werder and Sanders know each other from his time in the NFL. So I want you to listen again to this clip that we played earlier in the week and everybody's passing around as evidence that Coach Prime is, uh, you know, calling out a reporter, oh, this is a big deal, it's a serious thing. Is he joking here, or is he using this as an opportunity to kind of fan the flames in the way that Stephen just said, that he's going to look for motivation, going to create this narrative us against the world, and never going to miss an opportunity to create uh, a moment for the cameras. Here is uh, Coach Prime call- going at Ed Werder, the ESPN reporter. And keep in mind, they know each other. Werder covered the Cowboys when Deion Sanders was a player there. Very familiar with each other. What's up, boss? You believe now? You, you, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, no. Do you believe that? Huh? Oh, no, no, no. I read through that bull junk you wrote. I, I read through that. I sifted through all that. Yeah. Oh, no. Come on. Do you believe? You don't believe. You just answered it. You don't believe. Next question. <laughs> With that as the context, 
I now understand, and maybe I didn't the first time I heard it, that Coach Prime is, A, using this as an opportunity to grandstand, B, using this as an opportunity to double down on a, hey, it's us against the world mentality, which he now has subsequently done with Nebraska, saying that, you know, this is personal this week, this is a rivalry, uh, this is a personal thing, and, you know, and uh, ultimately you hear Werder in the background when he's saying, do you believe, he goes, in what? It, you know, this is a reporter who's familiar with Coach Prime, and I think given that context now, it makes more sense to me. I still think Coach Prime is detracting from his team's victory by drawing attention to this confrontation or false confrontation with a reporter. But I also think that, you know, this is kind of what he does. This is the shtick of Coach Prime, and I think it's been effective to this point. Yeah, no doubt. And I, and I think that the players have embraced it as well that no one believes in them and it's you know they're their own little universe out there in Boulder and I think all the players not only Shador and Travis Hunter but even the other guys you know Dylan Edwards uh you know just everybody on that team has really embraced like no one believes in us and I do think it's good and I do think that you know for a team like Colorado who's coming off a of one win season they needed something like that to really jumpstart their program now is it almost to the point where now we're overreacting and we're going to overrate this Colorado team. I think we're getting close to that, and we'll find out how it is in week two. I don't know. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying now that the initially they were undervalued and now they're overvalued? I, I am saying that already. It's week one. And <laughs> the fact that they've that, that game, Colorado-Nebraska, has been bet on more than 14 NFL games. Like It would be one of the highest bet games in Vegas right now in the NFL. That's how much attention is on this Colorado team. Now, you know, we all went into week one thinking, oh, you know, they're going to get blown out. Hopefully they can keep it close, all that kind of stuff. Now now they're the hunted. Like, Nebraska's going to come in and say, we're going to hunt this Colorado team. So it's going to be a whole different vibe. But, you know, Coach Prime's going to play the, you know, everyone's against us. And I think it's going to work. I think that's what they've wanted to do all season. And that's what they're continuing to do. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they react with this Nebraska team. I was not really impressed with Nebraska. I was uh... – uh, watching them, and they played a pretty pedestrian game against Minnesota in which, um, you know, there just wasn't a lot of electricity to it. It was kind of the antithesis of the Colorado game with TCU that, that drew all of that energy. There was just a lot of energy around that game. Like, win or lose, I think we were going to walk away going, wow, that was a really impressive sort of display, a very entertaining game, right, win or lose. And 7.3 million people watched it, and it was a big draw for Fox. Only Florida State LSU drew a bigger audience, 9 million viewers on ABC, and that's an ABC audience. And, oh, by the way, the Oregon State-San Jose State game on Sunday on CBS, unopposed on a Sunday, no NFL action, no college football action, draws 3.2 million viewers huge audience biggest pack 12 game uh of the week outside of that colorado tcu game so drew better audience than florida and utah uh, that that played on thursday on espn so really nice stage for oregon state since we're looking at like what drives the bus from a television standpoint colorado tcu was the biggest pack 12 game of the week then came oregon state san jose state then florida utah and everything else uh pretty much didn't rate because it was either on the Pac-12 network or it just wasn't a very good game. Do you think the Oregon State number has anything to do with the realignment stuff that, you know, the, the neutral fan may be rooting for Oregon State this season? Maybe, but I think the bigger factor was Sunday, no NFL action, only game on, 
on a major linear network, CBS. And so I don't think – I think if it had been Oregon, San Jose State there, it would have probably drawn a – uh, equal or better number. I think if it would have been Utah, San Jose State, it would have drawn an equal or better number. I just think there was enough there with Oregon State. Yeah, there's enough. There's a storyline there, and I think you know it's worth watching. But for Oregon State, good on you. Like you got the, I think it's the seventh most watched college football game of week one, and you know you're behind Florida State, LSU. You're behind Colorado, TCU. You're behind the Ohio State game, the Penn State game, Nebraska, Minnesota drew a bigger audience. North Carolina, South Carolina drew a bigger audience, and then it was Oregon State, San Jose State. So I think you got to feel pretty good about that if you're Jonathan Smith and Oregon State. But, yeah, there might be something to that. I think nationally it's the question I'm getting. Like, the question that I'm getting is interesting. And I, I always find it interesting when I travel because let's just say in the 20-plus years that I have lived and worked and covered sports in the Pacific Northwest, let's just look at that time frame. People know where I'm from. People, when I go out to the games or I'm going in a stadium or I'm on a plane and they say, you know, what do you do? And they say, oh, okay. The question that I get is always interesting. The first question to me is fascinating. And back in the early 2000s when the Trailblazers were the, were the Jailblazers, the question I got was always about the Trailblazers. It was. It was, what is it like to cover them? What is Rasheed Wallace like? What is Paul Allen like? Aren't you embarrassed of that team? Oh, the jailblazers, and they'd roll their eyes. And that changed over time. Right around 2005, 2006, 2007, people stopped asking about the Blazers and really haven't come back to asking about it. Just try it yourself. If people know you're from Portland or know you're from the Pacific Northwest, you know, you know, level with me. What do your friends ask you about first? Like, they may ask you about Damian Lillard these days, but the Blazers stopped being the thing that they ask me about. And it started to pivot towards what is it like? Uh, what are the Ducks like? What is Phil Knight like? Uh, is Oregon just a you know? What is that brand like to cover? Uh, is Nike? How pervasive is the Nike thing? Like you know, I get questions about that. But all of a sudden, in the last month or so, you're right, Stephen. The question has shifted to you know the raw deal that Oregon State and Washington State are, are getting because everybody's aware of it. Everybody's watched it. Everybody saw the realignment. Everybody knows they got left behind, and everybody knows it wasn't their fault. And so I think that question is going to hang overhead for Oregon State this season. It's going to hang overhead this week as they open their stadium. Uh, they're you know be at home at Research Stadium with UC Davis. It'll be hanging over their head. Kind of you know will they come out and play like the uh, you know they did last week? They're buzzing around like Yellow Jackets on Sunday at Spartan Stadium. And you know the the best way that I could put it is that they completely subdued San Jose State with you know using that alacrity, using that energy, using the focus, the chip on their shoulder, whatever you want to call it. They played with a lot of purpose and a lot of focus, and I thought that was interesting. And maybe it's an opener thing, or maybe, and I'll ask Jonathan Smith that, he's on today's show in the 5 o'clock hour, maybe that's just kind of how they've been practicing, and maybe that's who they are in part because of, the fact that they have been left behind and they are on a mission to prove to people that they should have been considered and do belong among the top 40 or 50 teams in the country. Well, there is a game this week on Saturday. Washington State takes on Wisconsin up in Pullman, and I'm very interested in that to see how Washington State reacts to that game thinking, you know what, we got left behind for the Big Ten, and now the Big Ten come to our house. Is there going to be a little extra motivation in that game? Are they going to come out and dominate kind of like they did last week against Colorado State, kind of like Oregon State did against San Jose State? Is it going to be a little extra motivation? I'm really interested to see that game in particular this week. And they're hamming that they're hamming that one up a little bit. And what I mean by that is, you know, they've turned it into the Mike Leach game. 
And it's not like Mike Leach getting in, you know, inducted into the Hall of Fame at Washington State. That's not happening. That will happen at some point, I'm told, by officials at Washington State. But, you know, they're not going to do, like, the massive Mike Leach celebration. But they are spending this week kind of celebrating the Pirate. And they're going to hand out 5,000 T-shirts to students. And they're going to hand out flags to people coming in the stadium, Pirate flags. And they're going to have a moment of loudness for Mike Leach. They're going to do swing the sword. They're, you know, it's there's just going to be some additional sprinkling of energy and enthusiasm on top of the game. And I think you're right. I think Oregon State and Washington State are pissed off. I don't know if they'll say it. I don't know if Jonathan Smith's going to come on the show and say how you know he's mad, he's ticked off, whatever. I, you know, I asked Chris Peterson about it uh, yesterday when we were recording the podcast episode that that I do with John Wilner and. Chris Peterson said, like, you just tell players, keep improving, keep focusing on what you can control, don't worry about the things that are out of your control. You say all that stuff, but underneath it, there's 100%, um, you know, no denying that that Oregon State and Washington State got dissed. They got told by the Big Ten, the Big 12, and the ACC, we're not interested in you. We're interested in other Pac-12 teams. You're picked last on the playground. And that has to that has to stick in the craw of the players and the coaches at both those schools. And so Washington State, I think, is going to sprinkle a little bit of pirate uh, pixie dust on top of this and say, hey, let's do the Mike Leach game. Let's honor him here. You heard Jake Dickert earlier in the week talking about what Leach meant. I wrote about Leach today. But I think there's just a little something extra there for you. Uh, you know, if you are a Washington State fan or you're an Oregon State fan or you're a player and I wonder how that will manifest itself. I don't know if the, you know, the funny thing is, like, I don't know necessarily if it's going to register all season long with people out of those markets. But if you're playing Washington State and you're Wisconsin and you're walking into Martin Stadium unaware of the fact that, you know, Washington State feels like they got left behind, they're dissed, they would love nothing more than to punch Wisconsin in the nose again, second year in a row, and sweep that home and home series. If you're if you're Wisconsin and you're unaware of that, like I I got to put that on the coaching staff because they should be aware of that walking into the building, as should every opponent that Oregon State plays this season, and you know it's not going to be Oregon State's uh, you know like like Oregon and Washington can be viewed as schools that did something to Oregon State whether you agree with Oregon and Washington leaving for the Big Ten or not, they they actually performed an action that Oregon State can say, they did that to us. They can say that with a straight face. And I'm not saying it was the wrong move, but I'm just saying Oregon State can look over and go, you did that. And and they can be mad about it. But I'm kind of wondering about the rest of the Pac-12 schools who walk in there going, hey, man, we, we were happy here. Like Utah. Utah was happy in the Pac-12. This Pac-12 thing was working out just fine for the Utes. They were dominating it. They were winning the conference championship. They were making more money. They were eyeing the playoff. They weren't having to travel all over the country. They were just staying on the western part of the country. Utah was happy to be in the Pac-12. I can tell you, I was talking to officials at Utah throughout the whole process. They were not going anywhere unless they had to run for the hills, and unfortunately they had to. But Utah's going to come to Research Stadium on a Friday night later this season in Week 5, and Oregon State's going to go, oh, yeah, we were better than you. The Big 12 should have wanted us, you know, and there's going to be that feel to every one of those games as there will be with Washington State. I'm fascinated by the TV ratings. Again, just to summarize, Florida State LSU, 9 million viewers on ABC. 
Colorado TCU right behind them at $7.3 million on Fox. After that, you have Ohio State-Indiana on CBS. That was on Saturday at uh, 12.30 p.m. Pacific time. Then it goes West Virginia-Penn State, Nebraska-Minnesota, a lot of big, uh, big Ten feel there. Then North Carolina, South Carolina, which you'd expect on ABC to get a nice audience on Saturday afternoon, 4.30 Pacific time. And then the next highest-rated game was Oregon State, San Jose State. It sort of jumps out at me. All right, leave it here. we got so much to talk about. Punch It Audio is coming up. We will visit with Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, in the 5 o'clock hour. I hope you're here for it. And Spencer McLaughlin will be joining us at 4 o'clock. He covers the Oregon Ducks. We'll be talking about Bo Nix. And we'll be talking about Texas Tech. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. Nice day out there, huh? Steven, you do anything this morning? Do anything fun? Interesting? Exciting? Uh, no, just uh, got the oldest ready for school, then got the youngest ready to drop off with uh, grandparents. So that was that was fun, I guess. There you go. Yeah. Like the so the older kids are not in are just starting school now this week. Yeah, yeah. Today was his uh, second day. Second day. How did how'd it go? How did day one? Day go? one, uh, yeah, went good. He said it was a nine out of ten, so I uh, can't really get better than that. I like that. I like that he didn't say ten. Because, you know, I'm always looking for improvement. Yeah, I don't, exactly. I don't like to give a 10 out, you know? <laughs> it's hard to get the 10. Hard to get a perfect 10. My oldest, uh, we used to go somewhere, and I'd say, what do you think? She'd say, 10 out of 10. I was like, I'd be like, are you sure? Like, come on, let's nitpick it a little bit. No, she, But she's a nicer person than I am. So it has to do with and that. Then it's hard to live up with expectations. you, you got a 10 in your mind. A lot of mm-hmm. expectations to live up That's to. perfect. Can't, uh, can't uh, go all the way there with that. Uh, coming up, uh, we'll be joined by Spencer McLaughlin, top of the hour. He's going to talk about Oregon, or I'm going to pepper him with questions about Oregon. They will play at Texas Tech on Saturday. Curious to see how they perform. I'm going to ask him, too, kind of about Bo Nix. I've been thinking a lot, little bit about where Bo Nix ranks among the Oregon quarterbacks all time. Like, you know, who's the best Oregon quarterback ever? That conversation includes players like Marcus Mariota, Dan Fouts, maybe Joey Harrington's in the conversation. Um, you know, the, maybe there's a Chris Miller in the conversation. But uh, who is the, you know, greatest quarterback of all time and where does Bo Nix rank are two different questions. Like on what stratosphere is Bo Nix right now? How much of it has to do with big wins? And the lack of big wins, maybe, in Bo Nix's season a year ago. Like, you know, he lost the, didn't win the Washington game. I shouldn't say he lost it. He didn't win the Washington game. He didn't win the Oregon State game. He won the bowl game. But I think there's some opportunities this season for Bo Nix to get quality victories. Like USC at home. Washington on the road. Oregon State at home. Utah on the road. Certainly bigger opportunities for Bo Nix. And can they get to a, to a, to a you know championship game, conference championship game. Can they get to Vegas? And oh, by the way, Stephen, I've been thinking about this. If Oregon State and Washington State go after this, really try to rebuild the Pac-2, do they hold a conference championship game if they go as a two-team conference in 2024? Think about that. Okay, I'll think about that. Yeah. Do, they, do they just go, hey, we'll see you in Vegas? 
the beginning of the year and then go out and schedule like their independents play each other maybe twice. Um, you know, it's a possibility. Like, everything's being unpacked right now by the attorneys, but I just think, like, do they hold a conference championship game if it's just the two of them? And they go, okay, best two teams get to Vegas. And they I, end up playing there. I like that. I do like that. Kind of a uh, culmination of the season. Like, <laughs> hey, we're, we're in this together, guys. Like, we're, we won't leave each other. I, I do like that. We'll, uh, we'll have more on that in the coming days. I'm trying to drill down on that and figure out what the attorneys are looking at as they are probing in the Pac-12 conference. On that note, we're going to play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Coach Prime, Tom Brady said he loves seeing Deion Sanders and Colorado have success in week one. Here's Tom talking about Coach Prime. Punch it. It was pretty great to see this last weekend. Deion and Shador out there at Colorado balling. And talk about a father-son duo. That was so, so cool to watch. And, you know, it's just what it's what life's all about, man. He goes from Jackson State. Deion's never been a coach. Jackson State. Goes to Colorado, gets off to a great start. You know, I saw his pregame speech. I was ready to run through, you know, my iPhone. You know, he's just doing great things. So it just speaks to great parenting, really caring about your kids. And we had great parents. And to, and to keep seeing stuff like that, that's what I love to see. Tom Brady texted Shador Sanders after the game, told him three words. Don't be satisfied. On that note, Rich Eisen talking about the NIL gains that were made by Colorado in Week 1. Shador Sanders, one of the big winners, 510 passing yards. But what did he gain in NIL value? Here's Rich Eisen. Punch it. From a site called NFL Rookie Watch, saying that since Shador Sanders popped up 510 yards on TCU, he's gained $2.5 million in NIL money. He's now making $3.8 million, which is $2 million more than Dak's base salary this year. $3 million more than Burrow's base salary. And again, base salary, you know, is just accounting. Yeah, 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 yeah. It still. But it's still jarring to see. And yeah, you know, obviously being Dion's son, balling out helps. But bottom line is Dion can go to a bunch of kids and say, your name here, your name here. Come to Colorado, your name here. He can do that for now. I think I think you need a bigger sample size to, to recruit like that over the course of a season. I also think some of this has to do with the fact that this is new, this is exciting, and this is brought to you by Coach Prime and his sons. Let's not forget it, Shiloh, his other kid, on the other side of the ball. But it's a great point by Eisen that you know there's more here than just wins on the field. And in fact, all the wins by Colorado to this point were off the field. Rick George, the athletic director, telling me, hey, not only did they sell out season tickets, not only did they sell out the spring game, like their social media mentions, their inquiries and applications for enrollment, uh, their website traffic at the university, all that stuff is up like, you know, 100%, 200%. So it's it, there's a halo effect to all of it. 
that we're watching. And I do think it's very interesting with the NIL stuff how you know numerous guys came back this season and could have been a you know a draft pick in the later rounds, third, fourth round. Bo Nix, Michael Penix Jr. decided to come back because of NIL, and that's why they're getting some money now. So it, it seems like it's going to elevate the college game, but it also is making it so it is kind of minor league NFL, and that's where we're going to those two big giant conferences. On that note, that's really helped at one position, quarterback. Caleb Williams, Bo Nix, Michael Penix Jr., Cam Rising, a lot of guys came back. Joel Klatt talking about why that makes the Pac-12 dangerous. Punch it. The quarterbacks in the Pac-12 make it the deepest conference in the country. So then the question becomes, can they make the playoff? Well, I didn't say that they were the most elite conference. I don't know what they're going to be at the top end. I'm nervous for that conference because they could just beat themselves totally up. Everyone talks about that. Their schedules are brutal. Um, you look at, at the gauntlet that every team is going to have to face. They, ha- they have to face two or three of these quarterbacks that I'm talking about. And now all of a sudden, Colorado's one of them. Colorado's now all of a sudden ranked. So here comes this sixth team in the Pac-12 that you're going to have to deal with. Like, geez, you got to deal with Travis Hunter and Shador Sanders now all of a sudden? I mean, it's a it's a really fun conference to watch. Fun conference to watch. I think Klatt's got it right, but he has the logic wrong. It's not just that they have to play each other. It's that there are no easy outs. The easy outs were Colorado, Stanford, Arizona State, Arizona. For a time, maybe, you could look at a program like Washington State and Oregon State, and you could go, hey, those are easier games. No longer. Oregon State's a 10-win team. Colorado's proven they're dangerous. Stanford looks much better. Arizona State's better. Jaden Rashada had 236 passing yards. And, you know, as a true freshman, he's going to be good. And, you know, it... It's not just the quarterbacks that Klatt's thinking about and you're thinking about and I'm thinking about. Like even like UCLA's Dante Moore, he averaged 20 yards of completion. On you know he had two touchdown passes on 12 attempts. Cal looked better. There are no easy outs, and I think that hurts you as much as the strength at the top of the conference. The fact that you don't have mulligans, you don't have weeks that you can just go. We can be bad this week and still win, because you can't. If you play bad against Washington State, they're going to beat you. If you play bad against Cal, they're going to beat you. If you play bad against Colorado, they're going to beat you. And and that wasn't the case in you know some years in the Pac-12, and I think that hurts as much as anything. Pivoting now to the NFL, where Ian Rappaport says Nick Bosa and the Niners have a deal. Five years, $170 million dollars. Punch it. The holdout for Nick Bosa, the reigning defensive player of the year, one of the best players in football, regardless of position, is over. He gets a big, fat new deal and becomes the highest paid defensive player in football. Listen to this. He gets five years, $170 million. That is a $34 million a year extension. Just a massive deal for Nick Bosa, who went out and played last year without an extension and really became uh, the best defensive player and earned every bit of this money. He eclipses Aaron Donald's deal. Just a massive, massive leap forward. As far as more details, he gets $122.5 million in overall guarantees, and the team agrees to waive all fines that he incurred while holding out which they are allowed to do because it was on his rookie contract, because it was on his fifth-year option. All in all, the 49ers get their star defender back at long last. And as far as 
Whether or not you were going to see him on Sunday, Kyle Shanahan joked basically he'd have to have a beer belly not to play. Translation, you will see him on the field. <laughs> I love that. Niners going all in. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. They're, they're in a win-now mode. They're not thinking four, five, six years from now when maybe that deal isn't isn't what it used to be. But it's a five-year extension that's worth $170 million. When you add in his 2023 salary, $18.9 million, Six-year deal worth $188.9 million, works out to $34 million per year in new money, true 34, since the deal includes a 17th game check. So, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll eventually figure out if this is a good deal or bad deal, but if he stays healthy, good deal for Nick Bosa, good deal for the Niners, but it obviously points to San Francisco being in win-now Mode. Well, it's been proven in the NFL when you got a guy in a rookie contract at quarterback like Brock Purdy, that's when you spend everywhere else, right? And so the, you're right. The Niners are going all in, saying we got the quarterback on a cheap deal. Let's get everyone else involved. This is a year to go in and try to win the Super Bowl. It, it was a deal that had to be done for the 49ers. So good for Bosa. Good for the Niners to get that done. Kind of feels to me that, that they're saying here we've got a two-year window. We're going to try to win a Super Bowl in the next two years and then deal with Purdy after that, uh, Texas Tech coach Joey McGuire talking about the Oregon Ducks. Texas Tech lost to Wyoming in the opener. They'll be hosting Oregon 4 o'clock Pacific time Saturday in Lubbock, Texas. Punch it. Taking on a great team, you know, Oregon Ducks. Um, got to watch a lot of film of them from last year. And then, uh, of course, on Saturday, they're a really talented football team. And so it's going to be, it's gonna be a, a great test for us. Uh, don't know Coach Lanning very well. I met him uh, at the uh, at the uh, draft. Um, you know, he had a, a corner drafted last year, and you know, know a lot of people that do know him. Um, great guy. He's done a phenomenal job. You know, last year he did a great job year one, and you know, he and I are sitting in the same boat year two at, at our schools. I do know their offensive coordinator really well. Uh, Will is a high school Texas high school football coach. He's at Lake Travis. Um, was at UTSA as their offensive coordinator, did a phenomenal job with them. I mean, you're talking about uh, extremely uh, talented team. We're looking at the numbers of snaps that they've taken. They're one of the few teams probably in the country that are a little bit older than us. Got a great quarterback, an NFL quarterback in Bo Nix. Got an NFL running back, you know, in Bucky, number zero, Bucky Irving. And then they've got an NFL receiver. I know that they have other NFL players on offense, but – Man, those three guys really stand out. It'll be a big game for Texas Tech as they have to try to right the ship. They had high hopes coming into this season. Their over-under win total was sitting around 6.5. And, and a lot of people had them down to win that game in Laramie. They lost it. It was a big win for Wyoming. And Texas Tech now facing, after you know blowing a 17-0 lead and losing to Wyoming, facing what amounts to a... Hey, uh, a little bit of urgency in Lubbock. And, and you know, we heard from Bruce Barnum on yesterday's show, Portland State coach. He predicted, and, he, and he's good like this. He's always been good to us like this. He told us last season when they played Washington, he said, you know, they're coming off the Jimmy Lake year. They play Washington in the opener, and he came on the show, and he said, they're good. He said, by, they're going to compete for a Pac-12 championship. And everybody rolled their eyes. And Michael Penix Jr. in Washington, indeed, competed for a Pac-12 championship. Now, Barnum came out of the Oregon game 
after losing 81-7 to and said uh, he believes Bo Nix going to be on the sideline in a baseball cap smiling in the fourth quarter, like he'll be yanked early. So he's predicting Oregon in a blowout. Keep an eye do, on that. Do you think a, um, the fact that Joe McGuire was so familiar with Will Stein has any effect in the game plan that they know, kind of, you know, comfortable with what he's wanting to run, so how to guard it and everything on the defensive side? I don't, side? I don't know because a lot of what you know, Dan Landing, when I asked him about his hire of Will Stein a couple of times, I, you know, even before he had hired him, I asked him, "What are you looking for?" And he said, "I'm looking for somebody who's going to do what we want to do and add some twists." So Oregon kind of had an idea of what it wanted to do on the offensive side. I think Oregon, you know, I don't think we saw anything from Will Stein in the opener. Like, Oregon just played at vanilla. Handed the ball off. Wasn't a lot of motion. I don't think they were doing, I don't think they opened the playbook at all. So I don't think Texas Tech has any idea what Oregon's going to do on offense and what they're going to look like. I think they just got to kind of look at the vanilla coverages on defense and the vanilla playbook and meanwhile texas tech was like like how deep into the playbook did they have to go in a double overtime trying to pull out a win like i i think oregon has a pretty good idea of what texas tech is going to do i think that plays a factor uh will the heat matter will the environment matter i don't know but i think or big advantage to oregon in the way that week one unfolded oregon not having a bunch of injuries oregon also getting some guys to get some light work and then get on the sideline and then turn the focus to Texas Tech. Duke's quarterback, Riley Leonard. I don't know if people saw this. Duke beat Clemson on Monday. Riley Leonard, the quarterback, engineering a 28-7 win over Clemson. Big upset. Well, apparently he didn't get his paper done, his assignment done in one of his classes. And he uh, put a video out for his professor asking for some leniency. You're going to hear the video. And you're going to hear the professor's response. Punch it. Professor Taylor, if you're seeing this, please let me turn in my homework late because it's due tonight. I think it's 12, so it may already be 12. Hey, Riley, great game last night, man. It was so exciting. Congratulations to you and all your teammates. But, you know, Wesley Williams and the other linemen who were in the class, they said they prepared ahead and did it ahead of time. So why didn't the quarterback? So no way, man. No extension. Professor Taylor not giving an extension to the winning quarterback. This is the most Duke thing ever. Also, why didn't the quarterback is pretty saucy from the other players on the Duke roster. But uh, also uh, saw on Twitter, saw on social media that the professor's ratings, you know how you can rate your professor? He's getting destroyed by other students at Duke on the rating system. I mean, it was a hilarious comeback by Professor Taylor there. I, I loved it. It sounded like it was in jest, all in fun. But, yeah, you know, if I was in his class, I'd vote him down too. Can't, can't be messing with my quarterback. We need the quarterback. Just beat Clemson. And, by the way, you can't do that publicly and expect to get away with it. Right. Like, you could do it. I think you could pull that off if you reach out to the professor privately and the professor's like, hey, there's no public eyes on this. Okay, I'm going to have a different response. But if you're going public with that, everybody's going, ooh, what's Professor Taylor going to do? Professor Taylor's going to clap back. That's what he's going to do, and he did. Up next, we'll talk about what a good encore performance would be for DJ Uyunglele. Plus, we'll talk Texas Tech with Spencer McLaughlin. He covers the Ducks. Anna will be along in the 4 o'clock hour and for the 5 at 5. And then Jonathan Smith. Oregon State football coach will take us home in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll talk to him about opening Research Stadium, his thoughts on DJ and, and what Oregon State can do better. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. 
back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Pac-12 undefeated, 13-0. Pac-12 teams won their games, won their opener. Uh, everybody won their opener, as we know. But did you know how long, Stephen, it had been since everybody won their opener? Do you know what the what the history is when it comes to that stuff? Uh, no idea. No idea what that would be, John. I okay, so I'm going to read a stat provided by the Pac-12 conference here. First time since 1932 that every Pac-12 team won its opener. Talk about history. First time since 32 that they won their openers. Uh, they are now playing seven Power 5 conference teams in Week 2, so keep an eye on that. How long can this conference stay undefeated? Uh, you've got games like uh, Washington State hosting Wisconsin. You, of course, have uh, you know a program like Oregon going to Texas Tech. Uh, you have Oregon State at home against UC Davis. You've got, um, you know, Arizona State playing Oklahoma State. Cal's playing Auburn. Uh, there are some opportunities for the conference, and certainly we'll see where they stand at the end of it. One of the things I've been thinking about as it pertains to Week 2, as we turn the page, is DJ Uyunglele in Oregon State. He became the first Oregon State quarterback since at least 1996 to throw at least three touchdowns and rush for two touchdowns in the same week. He was phenomenal. And if we're keeping Pac-2 records, this was a Pac-2 all-time record. He counted for five touchdowns. But what can DJ do in Week 2 as a as a step-forward moment for a quarterback that we're all kind of watching and saying, hey, Oregon State has hitched its wagon to DJ. What can he do this season? As he goes, the team goes. It's not quite that simple at Oregon State, is it? They run the ball, they play defense, and they really just ask the quarterback to make some plays and hurt the other team. But I feel like DJ is the kind of quarterback that can take some strides. And I watched the offensive play calling in the opener against San Jose State, and I was struck by something. I was struck by the fact that it was pretty bland. It was pretty basic. It was pretty vanilla. And I think Brian Lindgren, the offensive coordinator, was trying to give DJ a game plan that he knew he could execute, that he knew he could complete 70% or better of his passes, and he did, that he knew he would have some big success in, had some shots down the field, not too many, but had some shots down the field, had a lot of intermediate routes and underneath stuff. It was just a very nice game plan for DJ. So what am I looking for as a step-forward moment in Week 2 from DJ Uyunglele? Well, I'm looking for him to make his reads a little quicker. I, I still felt like he was thinking a little much and not reacting. There were some moments in the San Jose State game where I saw him you know, waiting for a receiver to to uh, be open before he released the ball instead of throwing him open, so to speak. And I, so I think there are some opportunities, especially against a Big Sky Conference opponent, especially at home at Research Stadium, especially game under his belt, for DJ to take a step forward in his progression. Because as much as we want to say that Oregon State will run the ball and play defense, there's going to come a point this season where they're going to need their quarterback to go win a game. And they didn't have that last season. Ben Goldbrinson was fine managing the offense. Went 7-1. He deserves a lot of credit. Chance Nolan had a shaky start. It's been some time, if not ever, in the Jonathan Smith era at Oregon State where they've had a quarterback capable of coming in and going and winning a game, and I think they have that right now in DJ. So I'm looking for in this UC Davis game a little less hesitation, a little more fluidity to his game. 
Uh, I'd like to see him throwing guys open. I'd like to see him stretch sort of the uh, the limitations that we saw on him in week one. Um, I thought he was at his best in week one. He was very calm. He, uh, you know, he made the right throws and the right reads. I saw him in the run game get to the line of scrimmage and change the play a couple times. He looks like he's confident and in command of what's going on on the field, and that's new at Oregon State. Like, we haven't seen a lot of that in the Jonathan Smith era, but I still just want to see just a little more of a smooth feel to DJ's game. I want to see him also when he's hitting running backs who are coming out of the backfield or uh, you know, a short pat, the short passing game. I want to see those passes delivered sort of uh, on, in rhythm. There were a couple of times where you know he hit a receiver up high. The receiver had to go up, catch the ball, ended up getting tackled and came up short of the fourth uh, fourth down conversion. And I think it was the placement of the ball that was the problem on the on that throw. And I saw that out of the backfield as well. He you know he was hitting running backs out of the backfield a little little low one time, high another time. I'd like to see him be a little more accurate with those easy easy throws and just more fluid in general, a little mechanical sometimes. As I think he's overthinking maybe wanting to make sure he's making the right read, the right throw. And some of that is probably because he is still fairly new to the offense. He was there in the spring. He's learned it. But it's time for DJ to kind of, against an opponent that maybe will slow down a little bit, Big Sky Conference, UC Davis, at home, big crowd, like to see DJ just be a little smoother. That's what I'm looking for. Steven, what are you looking for? Yeah, I, I agree with all those points. And it goes back to what I said last week, and that's to not – overcomplicate the game is to make the easy plays is to make the plays that he has to make uh in order just to help Oregon State not make the mistakes that's all I want to see out of DJ they don't need him to throw for 400 yards like you said before they just need him to be steady and to keep control of the offense I think that they do that I'm gonna be happy again once again because DJ's one of these guys five-star guy you want to see how long he can go without saying hey it's about me and it seems like he can do this and just uh playing within the offense yeah, I think Oregon State, like, you know, there's some programs. Like, you see Shador Sanders throw for, for you know, 510 yards. And you see guys like, you know, in other with other teams like Cam Ward, 451 passing yards. Like, they need to do that in those offenses. In Oregon State's offense, they're going to run for a ton of yards. They need D.J. to hurt the opposition when they put, you know, 9, 10, 11 people in the box. And, you know, I, I would expect him at the end of the year to be averaging like 265 yards passing per game, and, I, and they'd be happy with that. All right, I want you to leave it here. We're going to talk Ducks with Spencer McLaughlin, and he is coming up next. Well, the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame class for 2023 has got a date for induction. Tuesday, October 3rd at the Lloyd Center Doubletree. Rick Adelman, Mike Riley, LaMichael James, Dale Scott, Larry Sellers, Sherry Saval, Laura Tennant, Mike Clopton, and the Portland Mavericks all going in to the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame. Who's the biggest star in that group? Steven, Adel, Rick Adelman, Mike Riley, LaMichael James. I think those are the big names. If we had, like, 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 there's, like let's say there's 100 people in the room. And they can only really get a picture with one person. How, how many people are going out of that hundred are going over to Rick Adelman, Mike Riley, and Michael James? Who gets more? That, um, I would say Adelman. I would say Adelman, the biggest name, and then Michael, and then Mike Riley. Because hmm. you do have a problem with the, with the former Duck running back and the former Beaver coach. Because if you do the math, if you have 100 random people from the state of Oregon, 
you got to think about 50 and 50 are going to be Beaver fan, Duck fan. So it limits the audience right there. And then you have Adelman. I don't know. I think it might. I think it might be split. That was kind of my thought. Is that there's going to be more neutral fans to the Blazers, so they may go to Adelman rather than LaMichael or to Mike Riley. I, Bigger. Who's the biggest star? Who do, like we're putting up the marquee for the event, Judah. Who's the biggest star in that group? Rick Adelman, Mike Riley, LaMichael James, the Portland Mavericks, Mike Clopton, Dale Scott, Sherry Saval, Laura Tennant, Larry Sellers. <laughs> I'm a Portland Mavericks sucker, so I I would go Mavs all day in the uh, the battered bastards of baseball all, all all day on that. But Mike Dunleavy's up there. I was the first like you know Allman was a little bit before me, but um, you know I, I grew up with that '98 '99 you know turn of the century Blazer team as uh, as reputable as they were. So I think Mike Dunleavy Senior's up there for sure. All right, my I I think uh, LaMichael James. I, if I'm putting up the marquee. I put Mike Riley, LaMichael James, and Rick Adelman on the marquee, and I try to fit all three names. They're all in this class? All in this class. That's loaded. They are uh, inducting them, and I uh, just got the word from the uh, Oregon Sports Hall of Fame. No, but you're not going to hear it anywhere faster. Tuesday, October 3rd. Well, LaMichael, was, LaMichael set records at Oregon. That's the thing. Like, he, uh, you know, we talk... <laughs> That's why I kind of want to go LaMichael first over Adelman. Adelman may be the wrong answer. Maybe LaMichael because of what he did there, where Mike Riley just kind of you know controlled the whole legacy there. Depends how old the audience is, too. That's you got 100 people. If your average person is like 70, you might have more for Rick Adelman. You might, because that's going to be somebody who was like in their uh, 40s or 50s when Adelman was doing his thing. Mike Riley... Beaver fan, diehard Beaver fan's going to love that. And LaMichael James, diehard Duck fan's going to love that. Dale Scott getting no love from the audience today. Former Major League Baseball crew chief and umpire. He's going in the Hall of Fame as well. So good class. I've tweeted it out if you want to see it. Uh, on that note, I want to go to Spencer McLaughlin. He is uh, uh, an insider covering Oregon football. He hosts a podcast, Locked on Ducks, Locked on the Pac-12, I have a question for him. Biggest star in that group. We can only put one name on the marquee. Whose name are we putting up there? Well, I'm a young guy, John, so I'm going to go with Michael James. That's my favorite Oregon football player ever, but you won't hear me underselling Dale Scott, who I met at an Oregon tailgate down in Eugene many, many years ago, and I thought was a, a wonderful guy and told me a, an awesome story about uh, an experience he had with Boston Red Sox fans at Fenway Park and uh, some unsavory words that were sent in his direction after a stint behind home plate. So I, uh, <laughs> those were the two names that, that stood out the most to me. Mike Riley, uh, of course, you know, I grew up a, a, as a kid watching the Ducks and rooting for him and going against Mike Riley teams, and they were nothing but uh, pesky and well-coached and had some really good players. So uh, definitely some heavy hitters there. But you said not a lot of love to Dale Scott, and I thought to myself, well, goodness gracious, we can't. We can't let that happen. Can't let that happen, yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit on that note. If we're going to talk legacy, and I want to start this conversation by talking a little bit of legacy, Oregon's had some really good quarterbacks that have played at Oregon and gone on to the NFL, and there's some guys of you know yesteryear of the 60s like Bob Barry, obviously Norm Van Brocklin. You go back to, uh, you know, you can go back to Dan Fouts, Akili Smith. Uh, you can bring up Dennis Dixon and Justin Herbert, certainly. Um, Joey Harrington. Marcus Mariota, what are we going to do with Bo Nix? Where is he right now in the stratosphere 
of quarterbacks who have played at Oregon all time in your mind, and, and what's the ceiling for him? Well, I, I think he's certainly a lot closer to the top than uh, the bottom for sure. And if you look at transfer quarterbacks that have come in in the last seven, eight years for the Ducks, you know, Dakota Prukop is at one end, Vernon Adams and Bo Nix are certainly at, at the other end of it. And, you know, I've heard Duck fans for the last couple of years clamor for uh, developing a quarterback and recruiting a guy. And then at the same time, the narrative flips on Ty Thompson when he doesn't work out right away. And, you know, I, I thought Ty Thompson showed some real signs of growth and promise in that game. Granted, it was against Portland State. But, you know, for, for Bo Nix, I, I think in the minds and hearts of Oregon fans, I, I don't know if you can get above Marcus Mariota and Justin Herbert, not just because both will have started at least one more season uh, than Bo did for, for the Ducks or will have done by the time his career ends after this season. And, and you know, Mariota, the first Heisman winner, Herbert, the hometown kid from Sheldon, and ending with a Rose Bowl win. I, I think it could depend on, you know, where Bo Nix leads this Oregon team in, in 2023, how he plays and how he performs. But, uh, you know, what, where he really won me over last year, John, was that game against Utah. I mean, there are a lot of quarterbacks in the country, and, I couldn't have blamed him, who would have sat out uh, not just a Power 5 football game, but against one of the best defenses in the country year in and year out in Utah. And he went out there on one leg, and he gave us everything he had. And I, I think he won over a lot of uh, a lot of Oregon fans that day. He certainly did it sooner. But I think all time it's a, it's a tough list to crack. You know, I, I have an affinity for Darren Thomas like few people I know. I, I think he's probably the most underrated Oregon quarterback, maybe player, uh, in my lifetime uh, for, for the Oregon football program. Like, uh, that, that guy's football IQ was just off the charts, and all he did was make plays, run the offense, do whatever what needed to be done. Um, and he won, what was it, uh, 23 games in two seasons, and uh, that, that's going to be a tough benchmark for, for Bo Nix to reach this year, though perhaps not an impossible one. So uh, those are the guys that right now, I, I'd say off the top of my head, um, would would be squarely above him for me. Uh, you know, Mariota one, Herbert two, and, and I, I'd have Darren Thomas three. If Bo gets us to the playoff, then maybe he could work his way in there because he and Thomas would both have started two seasons for the Ducks. But uh, those are the three guys that I'd put ahead of him right now. And then you go back before my time, and you're talking about guys like Joey Harrington, Achilles Smith. It, it becomes a pretty tough list to, to crack inside the top five. You know, for people who are on carpool duty tonight, who will just be kind of, uh, you know, meandering around as they're taking their kids to practices or picking up, you know, they, they may hear this conversation and they may go like, hey, what are we talking about? If the guy wins a Heisman Trophy, doesn't that put him in the room with Mariota? Doesn't it put him in front of Herbert? Doesn't it put him in front of Joey Harrington? Uh, it, it, it certainly would, would bolster his argument. You have to look at the likelihood of that actually coming to fruition. Um, if, if he were to win the Heisman Trophy, to me that means Oregon has made the college football playoff. And, yeah, that, that might leap him in front of Darren Thomas in the eyes of some. But, you know, Thomas competed in uh, a, a different era. And, again, I, I might be higher on Darren Thomas than a lot of other Oregon fans that, that are out there. I, I just I grew up with him, and he was – so awesome you know there was a whole uh, debacle and controversy with Masoli leaving the team and we didn't know what was going to happen and Thomas came in and put our fears to rest uh, pretty pretty quickly when we walked out of Tennessee in 2010 with what was I think like a 42 to 13 win or, or something like that and Thomas played well so 
I, I think he can certainly elevate his status in terms of where he ranks in the all-time Oregon quarterbacks list. Um, but I, I, I don't know that even – unless he won a national championship, I, I don't know how he could get over uh, Mariota and Herbert. And for some people, that they'd say, you know, Achilles Smith or Joey Harrington are guys that are, that are firmly cemented in front of him too. I've heard people talk about the Heisman Trophy like it's lingerie, like, you know, it's off to the side and, you know, it's one of those additional accessories and you love it if, you know, if you're a football player who can put that hardware in the in the trophy case, great, but it's not, you know, it's not an essential in this conversation. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit, too, about, you know, the guy that's going to suit up for Texas Tech. Uh, for people who ha- has saw Tyler Shuck play, it was kind of a weird Fiesta Bowl, in your mind... Does he come into this game against Oregon on Saturday at in Lubbock with a little extra for the Ducks because of how it went down? I don't think so, no, because that was a different staff that, you know, deemed him not successful enough to be the starting quarterback. That entire coaching staff and most of the players, frankly, have uh, have gone in different directions for various reasons. And I, I, I think for Shuck and what we learned about him at Oregon, uh, I, I don't think he's somebody who – thinks that way. I'm sure he does a little bit, but I don't think it's a driving factor for him motivationally to try and put on a good display uh, this Saturday in Lubbock. I think his focus is, hey, our team's 0-1, and we were not expecting to be 0-1, and we shouldn't have been 0-1, and he's going to do everything that he uh, can to get them back in uh, playing the, the sort of football people thought they were capable of before the season started. We're talking to Spencer McLaughlin, Locked On Ducks, Locked On the Pac-12 podcast. What's a successful Saturday for Oregon? Is it simply winning the game on the road, coming home 2-0, and or are there style points here that are necessary in the long term against a Big 12 team that lost to Wyoming? I think there is an element of, of needing some style points to feel good, but it, it's early in the season. Bill Belichick's teams historically play their best football as the year goes on. Uh, now, Andy Reid's teams also play really good football in the beginning of September. Um, they also tend to play really good football in November, December, January, and February, too. So that, that's uh, kind of a moot point there. But I, I think for, for the Ducks, you know, I, I'm watching the defense more than the offense. I, I really uh, feel confident about what Oregon brings to the table offensively. I thought Will Stein did exactly what we wanted him to uh, on, on Saturday against Portland State. And I think he's got plenty of talent, plenty of weapons, and you know, experience as a play caller to go in and put up points on a Texas Tech defense. So, present more of a challenge than Portland State did for sure. But you know, if this is a game, given what we saw in Laramie on on Saturday, you know, Tyler Shuck threw the ball 47 times and he was sacked three times. If Oregon doesn't sack him or isn't generating pressure in that game against a team that, you know, might have been slightly overhyped, but I still think can be a 7-8 win football team in 2023. If they can't do that against Texas Tech, I don't know what Michael Penix is going to do to him this year up in Seattle after he went for over 400 at Austin Stadium in, in 2022. So I, I look at that element of it and say, okay, you should have multiple sacks. You should be able to pressure Tyler Shuck. And if you can't, that that is – you know, a, a caution sign at the very least. Maybe not a red flag, but a yellow flag uh, for the Ducks going forward. If they can't make him uncomfortable, and he's going to be throwing the football, you know, at least 30, probably 40 to 45 times. 
Spencer, uh, you know, Dan Lanning, you look back at last year and you say 10 wins, nice start, nice season, but then you look at the losses to Washington, the loss to Oregon State, um, you know, the Utah game, you give them the, because they MacGyvered their way through that, but I feel like he's got something to prove this year, and this is one of these games. Am I putting too much on this game? It's one of the games. I don't think it's the game that, that's going to define it, but it's certainly one that you, you would like to see Oregon be able to go down and win and not have to sweat it out in the very final moments and rely on a missed field goal or a fourth down stop or something like that. You know, I, I think Oregon will be able to go go down to Lubbock and, and come out with a victory. I think that you know what we saw during the eight-game winning streak is a lot closer to what the Oregon team was a year ago than what we remember most memorably in the worst way, which is the collapses against Washington and Oregon State. So I, I think that the Ducks will be able to go down and do it. But, I mean, if they go in and lose this game, it's it, it's not great. But you can't define an entire season in, in one week. You, you have to look at the entire body of work. And, you know, for Oregon fans, it's the most memorable part of last year was the, were, were, were the bad parts. And it was the – you know, not being able to stop the run against the Bees, not being able to stop the pass against Washington, not making adjustments in either game defensively. And I think Oregon fans really easily, and I've fallen victim to this for, for sure, because it's really easy to do. And, you know, as humans, I think we're more inclined to focus on the negative than the positive. We don't think about all the positive things, which is, hey, Drake made an NFL quarterback, and we didn't let him score a touchdown in in the second half hey utah the previous year had thumped us twice in two weeks we held them to 10 points with our defense and gifted them seven points with a stupid play call on offense like those are the sorts of things the eight game winning streak where you won games comfortably that you had to sweat out the year prior there were a lot of encouraging signs for dan laney the coach i don't think his season is uh, you know, defined as a head coach or you know one way or the other for good or bad uh, down down in lubbock on saturday yeah, I think I think it's really an interesting thing that you get caught up in the Pac-12 on not having a margin for error. And this year, you've got five or six, maybe seven, if you include Colorado and UCLA, really good teams that could all beat each other. And I kind of feel, Spencer, that it puts you in a position where none of these good teams can afford a loss in a non-conference game. You can't afford to lose if you're Utah at Baylor. It, you can't nope. afford, if you're Washington, to go to Michigan State and lose. You have to hold those games, and you know if you're going to have a mulligan, keep it for a Pac-12 game. That's exactly right, and it's the reason I feel the Pac-12 will miss the playoff this year. There are too many good teams. The conference schedule is just stacked for everybody. Oregon State's got a favorable schedule, but you know they, they've still got some tough games in there, and then someone's got to win the conference championship game as well, and you know, I don't think we're going to have a TCU who goes 12-0 and and then can lose the conference title game. So uh, I think it's really challenging to see that sort of path for, for anybody emerge, at least in my view. That's long been my take and continues to be as I watch the Pac-12 actually, you know, play meaningful football games, which is about as refreshing as a nice cold Arnold Palmer in a 98-degree day after all this realignment stuff. I, I look at Oregon and say, yeah, their playoff hopes are on the line this Saturday. That's not underselling it because you and you would then have to win out. And if you're not capable of winning that, that game against Texas Tech, you're not going to win out. And you, even if, you know, they they were to put themselves in a position to do that, I, I just think you'd be asking too much. It'd be 
really, really challenging. And if, if they don't, and this applies to any Pac-12 school, if you lose a non-conference game, nobody's going unbeaten in Pac-12 play. Nobody is winning nine straight Pac-12 games and then the Pac-12 title game. I just don't see that happening. I think there are a lot of really good teams in this conference. I don't think there's a dominant team in this conference. I am uh, really interested to see how many good teams, how many dominant teams there are in college football. I think we're going to find out more, of course, in the coming weeks. Uh, I want you to rubberneck a little bit over at some of the other Pac-12 teams. Did anybody look great to you? You know, and, and by the way, yeah. I don't know that we I don't know that we know that Oregon's good or great. Like that Portland State game didn't tell me anything. Uh, Utah, if Cam Rising is there, that looks like a pretty great football team. That was so thoroughly impressive. I think they were the most impressive. You know, Colorado gets all the headlines, but like that their their schedule is um, is tough. But their defense is really what's going to you know eventually do them in there. I, I think when you look at Utah and what they bring back offensively, if Cam Rising can get healthy, and what they can do defensively. I'm intrigued to watch them against Baylor. Oregon and Baylor, by the way, I'm sure you realize this, John, they're playing the exact same football game. Playoff hopes on the line, Big 12 team on the road who had an upset loss in week one and are playing to try and save their season from getting off to an 0-2 start. They're playing the exact same, and they're about a six-and-a-half, seven-point favorite. They're playing the exact same college football game. Uh, which I find to be fascinating. I think both should be entertaining games. I think Oregon and Utah get it done in both instances, but um, I think the most impressive Pac-12 team through week one is Utah. There it is, Spencer McLaughlin, Locked on Ducks. You'll hear him here on this show occasionally throughout the season. You can also read him at 750thegame.com. All right, coming up, Anna's going to pop into the studio, but there's some things that I want to talk about on today's show. Among them... Like Caleb Williams, his dad gave an interview with GQ Magazine, said he might be better off going undrafted rather than being the number one pick in the NFL draft. Is there truth in that? Plus, is it possible that college football's split away from the rest of sports could happen sooner rather than later? And what in the world is going on with sports and television? So there's some TV programming updates when it comes to the world of sports. We'll have it all coming up. Anna's in the studio. Anna, your uh, your seventy seven year old father is uh, living with us. He is uh, he his he, the room that he stays in is on the other side of the studio. Do you think he hears the show throughout the day? Do you think he's listening to the show? Uh, I don't know. He's a little hard of hearing, and so that might serve him well in this circumstance. I don't know. Though. He tells me sometimes you're in there working hard, like you know. So <laughs> I don't know. But uh, how's that been for you? How's that been? To have dad around. It's great. Um, you know, it, I think a lot of people can relate to the idea that, you know, you, if you've got elderly parents or loved ones that are at a stage of life where things are just not as easy. And he was uh, widowed um, a few months back. Uh, my stepmother passed away from cancer and he was living in Taiwan. We thought that he could live independently there, but it didn't take long for me to assess on the ground that that wasn't going to end well for him there. And so we made a relatively quick decision to bring him over and uh, bring him into our house. And, uh, you know, jury's still out on whether he can live independently here in some manner, but we didn't want to make any sweeping decisions um, when the emotions were running high and we just kind of weren't sure. But 
It's been it's been great. It's it's for me it's getting to know someone all over again that I actually haven't spent spent much time with since I was a, a little girl. So it's been very redeeming. He um he does he he's very conscientious. He yes. he tries he tries to stay out of the way. Yeah. So much so that I sometimes don't know he's here. <laughs> like he is really tries to like he kind of just moves around like he's a you know he's literally a ninja who like you know I don't yeah. I don't see him I don't hear him and then all of a sudden he's in the room well, <laughs> I'm like whoa he would have got me You know how you have some <laughs> house guests when they're staying with you like they don't tread lightly like it's clear yeah. they're present uh, no, yes. he's like the opposite I know. of that. And he's also very he's also very busy. Like he has his own set of activities. He's doing aerobics, he's doing yeah. tai chi. He's a very social person. What else does he do? He plays ping pong, he yeah. plays mahjong, yeah. he plays uh he uh, the other day, here's the other thing though. Because he's Taiwanese. Yeah. And he's living in Taiwan. Uh-huh. Monday came and he left the house yeah. like it was a regular Monday. It was Labor Day. He didn't know it was Labor Day. He walked over to the senior center. He walked like a mile. Yeah. And then you caught him walking back, like, because it's closed. Yeah. Nobody bothered to tell him it was a holiday. He's like, what I the mean, hell? They have a holiday here for people who work? <laughs> that was our bad. <laughs> oh, my bad. I should have alerted him. He said he knew that he just wanted to walk anyway, but I okay. don't know. I don't know. Well, it, it got me thinking, like, you know, hey, 77, and, you know, I, I read a story the other day that said, that it won't be long, like the average life expectancy, you know, was in the 70s, and then they expect it to be in the 80s, and then, you know, it won't be like very many decades before life expectancy pushes towards 100. And I was reading this story that said that, you know, in the like the last 40 years, we have added 20 years of life expectancy based with health things that Mm -hmm. have been proved. And so, uh, or last 50 years, it was 20 years of uh, expectancy. So... You know, it, you know, like, because, you know, I go back and I remember talking to my grandparents and they had siblings that had all died in like their 40s. Right. And that was not unusual. Like yeah. you went to a hospital to have your appendix out. You didn't come home. Right. You know, that was a thing. And and so, you know, advances in medicine, advances in procedures, health, genetic stuff that's going on out there that I don't even understand. Uh, people are going to start living older. And how old do you want to live? Because I have an idea about when I want to go. I it's not so much how many years I want the quality of life. Like I don't, I don't want to be a hundred and not be able to do a lot of the things that I enjoy doing, you know, like, and and like to my dad's credit, he's 77. He has had colon cancer twice, stage three and stage four. He laughs in the face of colon cancer. (laughs) He does. He's a very optimistic person. He's in remission from that now. And, you know, I really think that these kinds of things where he's engaging with people, like if you've got somebody in your life that is a senior who maybe lives alone, like call them, just give them a call and say hello, check in on them. Because I think there's a lot of seniors in our community that live alone and they don't have that interaction. They don't have family close by maybe. And I feel for them because it's, that's a whole different existence. It was know? a weird kind of two, three years with the pandemic anyway. Yeah. And then we saw a lot of people who were too young who were dying. Like, yeah. you know, I, I wrote about Mike Leach today, the Washington State coach. They're going to honor him on Saturday in Pullman 
at the game, the student section, they'll all have uh, pirate T-shirts on, and they're going to wave pirate flags during the game, hand out to 5,000 flags to fans, and they're going to kind of kind of rally around him a little bit. But, um, you know, I wrote about him today. If people want to read it at johnconzano.com, you can check it out. It, it's um, interesting and fun for me to, to write about somebody that I was really getting to know through this radio show and then later other people and – Frankly, once he got my phone number, forget it. He was—he'd call you at midnight. He'd FaceTime you on a Saturday night. He would—you know—there's nothing more alarming than getting a FaceTime <laughs> from somebody that you're not comfortable seeing you kind of in your element in. Yeah. Like you know what I mean? Like there's two people that popped into my head right now when I said that. Mike Leach FaceTimed me. You remember this? We were sitting on the couch on a Saturday night. Yeah. In the pandemic, watching TV, binge watching something. All of a sudden, I got a FaceTime from Mike Leach, okay? I, I suddenly sat up and go, do I take this? Yeah. Do I not take this? Is this an accidental? Is he butt-dialing me? Right. Like, you know, why is he FaceTiming me? So I go into the other room, kind of straighten myself up, and I answer <laughs> it, and it's Mike Leach, and he's on the FaceTime, and he's having himself a cocktail. He's drinking whiskey. He's obviously <laughs> intoxicated, and he's just checking in. Hey, Boba. Like, because there's no football game on a Saturday night during the pandemic. Right. And then the other person who did this to me, I texted Mario Cristobal. You may remember this. Yeah. We were on uh, vacation in Sun River. Uh-huh. Okay. It was like, you know, a couple of, might have been a couple summers ago or yeah. winter ago, whenever he had left. He had already left for Miami. It was a Saturday morning at like 8 a.m. And I just texted Cristobal and then his reply, he did not reply. His reply was a FaceTime. <laughs> and I was like, oh, crap. Like, I got to sit up. What shirt do I have on? Do I have crumbs on my face? Like, you know, just trying to straighten up and look like I'm awake, you know? And because I was just like texting, figuring text me back whenever. But that's a weird thing. I don't I don't think men FaceTime each other. That's pretty unusual. Yeah. Why? I don't I don't know. I don't know. Do you think that those two in particular? They wanted to see me. They wanted to see you. They wanted to see eyes. They wanted eyes on me for some reason. Do you think coaches in general have become more accustomed to doing that because they are in the recruiting process? I'll ask Jonathan Smith at 524 when he comes on the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, I would assume for them, like, it has to become more common. Like, that's just how... Stephen, do you think... What do you think? Do you think, do you think coaches, when they're recruiting, prefer to FaceTime or text? Um, I think... I think you might be right with Anna might be right with the FaceTime because they want to see their facial expressions. Like I remember when I was, you know, growing up, it was always like, you know, the coach was yell, you know, eyes looking at me. And so I want to see it, you know, see how they're paying attention to him. So I think uh, I think maybe right on that one. I think FaceTime's good to go. But but Leach was inebriated. And he was like, <laughs> Hey Bubba. Well, I you mean know? he probably doesn't want to send out a bad drunk text either. Right. You know, what's that. worse, a drunk text or a drunk FaceTime? He just wanted to know what I was doing and how fast the Pac twelve was gonna get back to playing football games. And I was like, we're binge-watching a TV show right now, and we're, what is going on? And then, You were on with him for a while, though. Yeah, it was, just, it was a long conversation about yeah. the pandemic and Larry Scott and you know, all that stuff. But, <laughs> and but, then you, how did you remember? Like, was it really a year ago today that was your last conversation? My last him? conversation and the last time we had him on this show was a year ago today. Really? Yeah, he came on the show, we talked, and then it was – frankly, no, it was at midnight – on uh, September the 6th of okay. last year, and this is September 6th, yeah. so ten, it, it is the anniversary, but the anniversary happened at midnight. Okay. Okay, so it was just after midnight on September 6th of last year, Leach texted me, I texted him back, and then he called me. <laughs> and we ended up on the phone, and we ended up talking about 
uh, Kiara. It's his dog. He <laughs> was walking his dog, and he was telling me all about the dog and how he's never been a person who had a dog that was trained and that this dog will walk on the left side of you. If you tell it to walk on the left side, it'll walk on the right side. He could set the leash down. He could walk away. The dog would stay there. He'd never had a dog that was trained. But what happened is somebody had trained this dog well. It was like a dog that had been masterfully trained by yeah. like Caesar Milan, right? right? And then the person had to give the dog away and gave it to Leach and his wife. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, I didn't, I'm not responsible for this, but this dog is amazing. Mm-hmm. This dog will fetch anything you throw. It will listen to you. It will, you know, and so Wait, he's. But he was calling you at midnight Pacific time, but he wasn't in the Pacific no, no, time no, no. zone. No, no, right? no. He was calling me at, yeah, yeah, it was mid, yeah, it was midnight. It yeah. was midnight Pacific time. That means so it was like. It was like 2 or 3 a.m. Yeah. his time. I think he's in Starkville, Mississippi. I think they're in <laughs> Eastern time. So. He, but that's how he was. He didn't sleep. Yeah. He had a hard time sleeping. Huh. And so you'd wake up. I'd wake up at like 7 a.m. and I would see I got a text from him at like 3. Yeah. But that's who he was. And even in the end, you know, the story about, you know, he, how he died, he was in his living room on the sofa and he was kind of snoozing. And his wife thought he was asleep. And mm-hmm. at that point he had had a heart issue and she didn't know it. And mm-hmm. so... That was part of, you know, his passing and that he fell asleep and kind of died right there in his living room on the couch. And but he uh, he so we had that we had that talk about his dog and he asked me a few things about the Pac-12 and then he agreed to come on the show. Mm -hmm. And then we had him on the show that day, Mm -hmm. that next day. So we had an interview with him and it was the last time that I spoke with him was uh, September the 6th. It was a year ago. And I didn't I didn't wake up thinking that it was really weird this morning. I woke up and I thought, Washington State's doing this Mike Leach thing. Mm-hmm. They're honoring him this week. Yeah. And then I went back and I looked at my phone and I pulled out my text, my last text to him, and I go, oh, September 6th, hmm. last year. It's been a year. And I was like, that's really weird. That's uncanny. And then the column that I ended up writing about was not about me or Leach, but it was about Leach's relationship with a booster at Washington State named Wade Hogue, who lives in the state of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Now, Wade owns and operates a manufacturing business, and he is a diehard Washington State booster. Mm -hmm. And so he was at a fundraising event, and he gets put at this table with Mike Leach because, you know, he's a donor. He's given money. He's writing checks. They sit him at a table with Leach, and they hit off like what is a friendship that goes on for years and years and years. And that friendship extended after Leach went to Mississippi State, Wade Hogue would drive his RV down to Starkville, Mississippi, and they would hang out. He ended up buying a house next to Leach in Key West, Florida, 50 feet from Leach's house. Like, they became buddies. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, and I'll just, I won't steal the thunder of the column. If you want to read about it, you can read it at johnconzano.com today. But it's... It, the friendship starts at that table at the banquet. We've all been to those stupid fundraising banquets <laughs> that just drag on and on and on. Right. And I asked Wade Hogue, I said, like, what was that first impression of Mike Leach? And he said, I actually have video of it. And so he sends me the video, <laughs> and it's Wade and Mike Leach who are sitting at this table, and they dare this kid who's elementary school age kid who happens to be at the table they say, I bet you can't put that whole piece of cheesecake in your mouth in one bite. <laughs> and so they, they eventually say, if you do it to the kid, we'll do it. And so the video is of Wade, who's a big 
giant tall guy shoving a piece of cheesecake into his mouth while Mike Leach is sitting next to him like his teenage friend, kind of marveling at the fact that Wade can put this entire piece of cheesecake in his mouth with two hands. I mean, double-fisted, just shoving it into his mouth. And then the best thing is the voice of Mike Leach as he's off to the side, unmistakable Mike Leach comment. And and the thing that made Leach, I think, really interesting was his brain, right? He had a law degree from Pepperdine and all that. But you can hear Leach go, that is just genetic superiority right there. <laughs> like, you know, he's just talking about this guy shoving a, like, eating contest piece of cheesecake in his mouth like it's genetic superiority right there. And then he said, I didn't include this in the column. Then he goes, unbelievable. <laughs> like that. So I wrote about their friendship because I think it's it's, it's cool. just really interesting. But. Um, you know, look, he was gone too soon. He died at 61. Mm-hmm. Too young. Way too young since we're talking about ages and, and, and passing. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about sports and TV. Some news out today on the TV front. If you're a sports fan, you're going to want to hear it. A couple of stories uh, in the news today. Real Sports, HBO's longest-running show, will end after 29 seasons. You You may remember Bryant Gumbel on the show and... He's been hosting since April of 1995. Since day one, this is a show that bills itself as consistently looking beyond the scoreboard, focusing on societal issues inherent in sports. Um, Brant Gumbel is moving on in real sports, is ending after 29 seasons on HBO. Also, uh, ESPN is ending its linear outside the lines show today uh, you combine that with real sports and you have to think about long-form sports journalism whether it's cable or linear it doesn't seem like there will be a digital arm to this thing that uh, lit props it up uh, you know and I, I'm just gonna throw another story out there to kind of combine with this if we can talk about those two things, Anna. I want to, let's just start with the two TV things, and I'm gonna I'm gonna layer something else on top of it after. But why why are those shows going away? And is it is it a TikTok generation? Is it that you know the long form, in depth, hard hitting shows like that don't resonate as much as a documentary that has got a lot of great video and access? Like, I have to think the market is trying to tell us something. I don't know because, I mean, we've obviously seen the popularity of, you know, the quarterback show, Hard Knocks. Those are really uh, well consumed right now by the sports community. So um, uh, I'm not sure. But they're less about journalism. Like, outside the lines in real sports, they're doing journalism. Like, they're Mm -hmm. telling stories. They're calling out teams. They're, They're looking, they're, you know, talking to the doctors on league of denial about the concussions in yeah. the in the NFL and they're you know outside the lines has just done a great job kind of a, in a magazine style mm-hmm. probing deeply yeah. those shows you're talking about are more like hey let's get access to Patrick Mahomes you know in his house and show him what it, what he's like at home yeah you know it, it, it we're, those aren't journalism well and the journalism's harder right in in a lot of ways because it's not always easy to get the stakeholders to buy into, um, you know, an investigative story that may not reflect well on the entity that you're covering. And so they are, those are expensive shows to shoot um, and, and to coordinate and plan. And it makes me sad that they would be going away. I mean, I, I, 
I cherished the reports by Frank DeFord. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was a, a master of uh, wordsmith and constructed a story in a way that was so interesting. He himself was such an interesting character. Um, there were some really stellar uh, reporting done on that show over the years, and, and I lament that it's going away because in the end, when you don't have that kind of spotlight, when you don't have a place for the whistleblowers to go, and call out things that are wrong within an industry where so much money is floating around and you know where there's money there's corruption and there's abuse of power then it, it, you know there's no check on that right like Frank, who, who yeah. do they who do we lean on to um expose things that need to be told i had frank, frank deford on this show about five years ago we talked about the nfl major league baseball it, but just to give you an idea of the depth of kind of thought that was going in, this isn't like TikTok stuff, right? This isn't to be consumed in 90 seconds. Are you surprised that the NFL's king, that baseball is where it is, and that the NBA is where it, where it is? I think um, people would have made more of a bet on hockey at that time. Hockey was bigger than basketball. The NHL, you know, sold out every game, I think, just, just about in those six, six cities. And so I think people thought it was going to... You know, I knew the NH. I knew the NBA had to get bigger. I mean, everybody yeah. everybody played basketball. It ha it had to get bigger. Um, I don't think I ever would have imagined that football would have gotten this big. Baseball is kind of funny because people say baseball has gone down. It isn't so much that baseball has gone down; it's just football has gone up. I mean, it, it used to, you know, own the store, and now it doesn't. And many more people go out to baseball games now than they did back when it was, yeah. you know, numero uno. And so, um, I mean, I remember when, if you could draw a million people, that was considered, hey, what a franchise. Right. And then you draw a million people now, they're going to move the team to, <laughs> to Waco, Texas. Right. And so, uh, so baseball hasn't gone down so much as the other sports has, have 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 gone up, and that and that I, um, but but football, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and I think it's. Uh, I think it's obvious it's the brutality and the betting. That, that, I mean, it's a good sport, but but I think the violence has a lot to do with it. All right, so you get somebody who's talking honestly right. about sports, and you found that on a show like Real Sports, mm -hmm. and you found that on Outside the Lines, and I'm kind of left wondering, like, who's going to... Who's going to be left to talk honestly about these teams if ESPN's other shoulder programming, let's be real, a lot of it is marketing. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is built on, hey, we own the rights to the college football playoff. Yeah. We are a partner of the SEC, uh, and it's all about you know us promoting Saturday's game and Thursday's game and Friday night's game. And, like, <laughs> the audience dictates what happens though right in a lot of ways like if viewers really had a thirst for that kind of reporting they would watch it and the ratings would reflect it and so we're being fed what we are telling the network entities what we want and so they give us more of it but it's kind of that age-old conversation that you and I have both had in newsrooms do you just give people what they want? Do you shovel it to them, you know, in buckets? Or do you sometimes feed them what they need to know and what they should know? And, I, I, like, I'm, I'm concerned, obviously, with my journalistic background, I'm concerned 
because with the billions of dollars that are flowing in sports, you know, I do wonder if there's no fourth estate that is looking into things that aren't right, um, that is the accountability. giving people, uh, you know, a voice when they need one and to call out injustices, then then who will speak for them? I had this conversation with DeFord in studio, and i got to be honest with you, it was one of the few times, you know, I, I, I'll tell people, look, I've interviewed whoever, Mike Tyson, President Obama, Kobe, whoever. I wasn't nervous. I was nervous with Frank DeFord. Really? Yep, because I, I saw Frank DeFord as he was on the, um, you know, he was on, so to speak, Mount Rushmore of sports yeah. writing. Yeah. Uh, asked him about storytelling. Where did you get the gift of telling a story? I have no idea. I think it was something I was born with. I really mean that. I think that uh, I, th- I think I was, you know, you know, blessed to have a gift. I, I say in the book that I'm a natural writer, but I also because that sounds really vain. But I also say I've seen a lot of natural athletes who didn't use that natural ability, and I've seen that with writers too. But I do. I don't. I think there's a certain amount of writing that can't be taught, and I was just. You know, lucky I knew when I was eight or nine years old I could write. Did you have a grandfather or father or somebody that was a big storyteller in the front of the room? Or oh. did you, you know, when you go back there, did you pick anything up as a kid? My, my mother's side of the family. My, my father, I don't think, ever read anything. He never read much of anything. And his, I don't remember anybody in his family reading. But my mother, I had a, a, a distant relative, a guy that nobody's ever heard of anymore, named James Branch Cabell, who was a great novelist at the turn of the century, the last century. I tried to read his books once, couldn't get through the first chapter. But anyway, at the time, he was a great writer. And so everything was on my mother's side, of the, and she told good stories. And so I, I guess that's where I got it from. That, I loved hearing that from Frank DeFord. <laughs> and so, you know, I think there's a shortage of that out there. Yeah. And I think people are, it's cool, you get to watch your teams, you can consume the sound bites on social media, Instagram, whatnot, TikTok. But if you're looking for real depth, I think, you know, I think it's one of the reasons, and I don't, and again, to steal DeFord's line, I don't mean to sound vain here, but I think the show dives deeper. And I aim to do that on this show. And of course, I aim to do that in print, at, you know, when I'm writing. And, but, you know, I saw today another story, and this is the other thing I want to bring in. There was a sports information director who quit his job today and stepped down as the SID. Now, for people who don't know, sports information director is also like, at a lot of universities, Andy Jones, who worked at Anderson University in South Carolina, quit and posted the story that was posted, basically had this quote about him not embracing the expectations that administrators are putting on SIDs now. They are adding sports. They are telling them to do social media. These are people who are, have grown up in the industry going, what, what do you want me to do now? He said it was becoming less about storytelling. He said, unfortunately, the focus is on hype, seven-second video clips, and poorly worded social media posts, which are a lot of flash and not much substance. No one has the time or the ability to write a story anymore. Record-keeping, stats, history, they're not a priority. What do you say to that? He's not wrong. It's kind of sad. It's where things are going. It, but I think you've got to be able to do both. Yeah. Like, I don't blame the university for having a marketing arm that does this the flash and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But you have to hold on to that institutional knowledge at the same time. Mm-hmm. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide.
Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be joining us at 524. Did I yell that at you, Anna? You did. You jumped when I said that. <laughs> yes. He'll be joining at 524. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. He'll be with us. Why? Because he's got a big game this week. They're opening the new reopening. It's like a mattress store. It's the grand reopening of Reeser Stadium. They've got the new west side of the stadium all retrofitted, ready to go. Everybody's excited about it. Feel for uh, UC Davis. They, When they scheduled the game, they probably thought, you know what, we're getting a payday. We're going to go into Reeser Stadium. You know, we play really well. Who knows? Might have a chance to stay in the game. They're, they're getting a 10-win season last year, a team coming off a 10-win season, who looked really good in week one who's now opening the season. And, oh, by the way, they got dissed by the entire conference. Chip on their shoulder. Good luck, UC Davis. Get him on the show. Jonathan Smith, coming up in 23 minutes. Going to be awesome. We're going to have him every Wednesday now on the show. Anna's here. Anna, you... uh, you ready to do the five at five? Always. She's always ready. Steven, you having any fun today? Tons of fun, yeah. I uh, always have a lot of fun on the show. Did you like when I compared the Heisman Trophy to lingerie? Yeah. Those, those, that's my type of thing that I like to hear. Yeah. See? <laughs> well, I was just thinking, it's one of those things that you like to have, but it's not necessarily necessary. It's kind of an extra. It can, it can look know? good. It can look good on you, you know, yeah. in the right situation. It's an extra. It's lingerie, you know? Yeah. It, it's it's college football's version of lingerie, the Heisman <laughs> Trophy. Not, ne- not necessary, but it helps. Also, why do you ask Steven a question that he can't say no to? Are you having fun on the show? Like, Steven, would he you? could. Would I you? Could you? Could you he really? He says no to everything else. Could you comfortably say, no, I'm not having any fun on this show? I think so. Good. All right, here's Steven. Okay, here's Steven, right? Steven, what's your favorite concert you've ever been to? Never been to one. <laughs> Like, come on. He's okay being a wet blanket. He's fine. I'm, I'm not afraid to say no. I'm not afraid to say, eh, it's not my thing. No, I, I, I am having fun. Good. Sometimes I go, Stephen, what are you doing this weekend? Eh, nothing. So? Yeah. He's fine. Good. I'm glad. He's fine. Leave him alone. It's like Nate McMillan said once upon a time. When, remember when Greg Oden was having all those problems? Everybody's asking, which, what's going which on? problems? What's going on with Oden? There were many problems. Nate McMillan had to come out and talk to the media, and he had to go, he's fine. He's fine, everybody. You know, it's just, uh, it was uh, one of those great moments in Blazer lore where Nate McMillan had to answer to to, uh, people who were concerned about whether or not uh, the the Blazers were going to be in trouble. He's fine. Okay. That's what Steven is. All right, Anna, let's do it. The five at five. The five at five. Anna's number one story as she sees it. This is interesting. I want to know what you think about this. Um, USC's quarterback, Caleb Williams. Okay. He's fine. Okay. Everybody, he is fine. Guess who just found the audio of Nate McMillan? After we'd already moved on. Okay. I just like that you compared me to Greg Oden. That, that made me feel good. <laughs> Take it as a compliment? Yeah. 
Go on. Well, Caleb Williams. So, well, he, he is fine. He's the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, donning some NFL lingerie, I guess. Yeah. Um, but his dad's talking, and it's interesting that his dad is hinting at the idea that Williams could opt out of the 2024 NFL draft. The idea is that <laughs> this is what Carl's, Carl Williams is saying. Right. He'd almost be better off not being drafted than being drafted first. The system is backwards. He's got two shots at the apple, so if there's not a good situation, the truth is he can come back to school. And, and of course, yeah. he'd be going back to a USC that debuts in the Big Ten. Next yeah, year. and he would be going back, presumably, to try to win some more lingerie and get some more <laughs> NIL money. Like, it, and here's the here's one of the silver linings of name, image, likeness. Caleb Williams is making money right now. Shadur Sanders made money last weekend mm. when he was, you know, when he won that game and his profile raised at, at Colorado. They said two point five million dollars was the estimate of what he would earn based on that win, right? Like in in endorsements. So there is some money out there for players who are staying in school now. And his dad's not wrong from a pragmatic, you know, using a pragmatic approach. He wants what's best for his son. He says it's backwards because the team gets to pick his son instead of his son being in control of where he goes. And this is the first time in Caleb Williams' life that he's not being in control of where he goes. He ended up, he chose Oklahoma as a freshman. Then when his coach left for USC, he chose USC. Caleb Williams has been in the driver's seat for all of this stuff. But the NFL says, hey, the bad teams get to pick first. Guess what? You're going to be the number one pick. So he'll be watching Mm -hmm. to see who gets the number one pick. Do you think there's a chance he pulls an Eli Manning and says, I don't want to play for San Diego. I want to go to New York. Yes, but I I don't think it's only him. I think there's a generation of players who are coming down the line, who are going, why do they get to pick? I mean, cause well, it ha- because I mean, when was the last time that happened, John? I, I mean, was, was Eli the last guy to really do it? Eli did it. Uh, I can't remember. John, if... I mean, John Elway did. Yeah, John Elway did it. I, you know, I, most of the guys are just happy to get to the NFL, but that was before NIL money was there. Because Caleb Williams could go back to USC, and guess what? He can make more money at USC right now than he probably can on a rookie contract in the NFL. That's so crazy. Because the argument used to be, don't go back in and risk getting hurt before you get your chance to play in the NFL. Yeah. Or he can get an insurance policy and go back and take the NIL money. But I think he wants to go pro. I think Dad's just planting the seed, and GQ Magazine is fanning the flames. (laughs) Number two story, as you see it. Former NFL wide receiver Mike Williams um, is on life support. He was hurt at a construction site that he was working at. He was struck in the head by a steel beam. He has swelling on his brain, swelling on his spinal cord that was ruptured. He's in a hospital in Tampa, Florida. His father is uh, sharing this information via a GoFundMe post. You might remember Mike Williams from his time at Syracuse, 36 years old, spent four seasons with Tampa Bay, and then uh, also played for the Bills and the Chiefs. Eight-year-old daughter. Uh, there was a Buffalo TV station that reported last night that he had died. His family says he's on life support and they're weighing options now. And, you know, I saw a quote in the Tampa Bay Times from the mother of his daughter who said that he was asleep when they came into the room. He heard their voices 
And he looked around and blinked. He cannot move. But um, uh, this is sad. And I don't know that this one's going to have a happy ending. But thoughts, prayers, obviously, and a lot of people trying to figure out what the right course is with Michael Williams. Number three. Nick Bosa finally uh, agreed to an extension with the 49ers. It's just a five-year deal worth $170 million. It includes $122 million guaranteed, and it will make him the highest-paid defensive player in NFL history. Wow. Like, I, I, I can't even wrap my head around that much. $34 million dollars a year in, you know, puts him under contract for six years. I think the big takeaway is that the 49ers are going all in right now. And Stephen pointed out in Hour 1 that they, they can give him this kind of money because they've got a quarterback in Brock Purdy who's on a rookie contract right now. And this is the time, and this is how teams in today's era, there's a couple ways to get to a Super Bowl. One, you have a generational quarterback who's bound for the Hall of Fame, and you ride him to the Super Bowl. Second one is you you have a rookie uh, quarterback on a rookie contract, and you just overspend in every other way, and you become this great defensive team who's got all these weapons. I mean, Russell Wilson getting the Seahawks to that Super Bowl. Colin Kaepernick in the Niners, great example of that. Brock Purdy in the Niners now. Joe, um, Joe Burrow got yeah. the Super Bowl with the Bengals. Yep, Joe Burrow. I mean, there's just some – it's one way to do it because you have money to spend on on other players. By the way, here's Nick Bosa talking about playing against Patrick Mahomes. He definitely told me that you, you can't just rush as a, a single rusher. you got to rush as a unit. Stay in your lanes and don't let them get out of the pocket. That guy was the defensive player of the year and one of the most formidable players. Kyle Shanahan telling reporters that Bosa, even though Bosa sat out of training camp, um, even if he has a beer belly, he'll be on the field. <laughs> he'll resume training camp. Number three. Uh, Jenny Hermoso, the soccer player for Spain, has filed a criminal complaint. Oh, man, this is getting good. Uh, over the kiss planted on her by the head of the Soccer Federation in Spain, Luis Rubiales. Mm -hmm. She's claiming the act was sexual assault. Um, he's still just suspended from FIFA. He still has his job, but the Spanish government's investigating the incident. He's adamant the kiss was consensual, claiming the outrage is nothing more than a winch hunt by false feminists, but she feels like she's a victim of aggression. Not only that, felt that she was pressured by the Federation to downplay the incident in favor of Rubiales. So uh, this isn't going away. The players are still saying they're not going to suit up for Spain unless he's ousted. And his mother's in the hospital refusing to eat a Snicker bar. She's on a food strike, right? Well, I don't know what her status is. Yeah, but I, this is all bad, and Luis Rubiales needs to go away. Why, why doesn't he understand go away? He needs to go away. Not going away yet. Number four. Uh, I think this is five. Number five. Uh, Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> is it right? Is that five? Steve? Steven? So you had Bosa. Yeah, yeah. I think you had Mike five. Williams. Yeah, pretty sure. You had, uh, I can't remember. I interrupted Let's you. Let's just He's say five. it's five. I think right, it's number five. I think it's five. Yeah. Number five. Um, I don't know why, but I just love this story. About a third of the participants who ran in the Mexico City Marathon This is number four. Month, okay, but go ahead. Were disqualified after it was discovered that runners were cutting the course during the event. 
listen to this. Of the 30,000 runners that entered the race, 11,000 did not complete the required distance after tracking data showed them bypassing entire sections of the course. Complaints were also received alleging that some runners used public transportation, vehicles, and bicycles to finish the race. <laughs> I gotta know how often this happens. Well, they, they have them tracked. Uh, that's the point. Yeah, that's how they it, figured it out. Because when you first started the story, I thought, well, if you're in a group and somebody makes a mistake and takes a wrong turn and ends up going down the wrong street, I could see how like 400 runners after that would still be taking the wrong turn because they're just following the person in front of them. But if they're getting on public transportation, if Steven's <laughs> running in a marathon in front of me and he hops on, you know, one of those scooters, I'm not going to be like, oh, I need to get a scooter. You know, this this is like, remember when Rosie Ruiz, 1979, 1980, she, New York City Marathon, she jumped on the subway. She won the damn thing. She can't was good. That. You can't do that. Do you bring a second outfit if you're a runner? You throw it on, hop on a bus, and then... Just, if you want to run a marathon, run a marathon. I know. If you don't want to run a marathon, run a half marathon. Okay? And then you can go down from there. All right, that was number four. The number five story is Portland State in the oh, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember that. Yeah, yeah. You, right. you forgot to tell us about I it. I did. Well, you already talked about it, but I think it's interesting that this story is now making the rounds on Sports Illustrated and other places. In case you missed it... Uh, this was Bruce Barnum telling you about the defeat that Portland State endured against Oregon and just casually, went viral. casually mentioning, yeah, going viral as he's known to do, casually mentioning that one of his players had his ear ripped off during the game. I asked him about injuries. Did you come out of the game healthy? We're fine. Uh, you know, knock on wood, we had, we had one guy get his ear ripped off. Um, they sewed what? it back on. What? And <laughs> and now they say he has a concussion. And he can't, you know, so he's out. But I think he's fine. He's talking to me today, Coach. He said, Coach. He really got his ear, his ear like a Vander well, Holyfield? not the whole ear. Not the whole ear. But par he partial ear detachment. I think wow. it was from when they he got his helmet knocked off. And I think his ear didn't come out so. of his helmet. Anyway, so they were sewing so. him up and. So they, I guess that means you have a concussion. And, and again, we're take, we're making sure he's fine. So he'll sit out this game. But Evander Holyfield. My favorite part of that interview, obviously, I hope the kid's okay. Yeah. And that the ear. I have a favorite part too. Has been re reattached. Yeah. Properly. What's your favorite part? The fact that. He's the only person I know who says knock on wood and then actually yeah, like... <laughs> knocks on something. And you can hear it. It's yeah. an audible knock. There is a knock in the background. I like that. It was um, three knocks. I like that. Um, well, I want to play that when he says knock on wood. I want people to hear it. We're fine. Uh, you know, knock on wood. We had. We had... <laughs> you can hear him. He knocks on the wood. My part was when he has this kind of gasp where he, he realizes what he's saying is funny. <laughs> and we're both talking about somebody who had their it's ear ripped off. Really funny, I'm kind though. of I'm kind of in disbelief and laughing. And then he starts to do that as well. And I'm going, we're both kind of sitting here talking about somebody whose ear got detached. Not the whole ear. 
You know, and, and I tweeted it out. So I took the audio and I tweeted it. Okay. And I knew people would listen to it and it would be Bruce Barnum fancy, right? Because he, he is quotable that way. But then I had some people go, well, you were misleading. His actual ear didn't get ripped off. No, I, his, the coach said his ear got ripped off. That's what he said. I wasn't there. I don't know if there was actually a full ear on the ground that someone had to pick up and put on ice. It's also not funny. I hope this kid's okay. Well, I don't think it would be hard to figure out which one it is. Look for the team photo. I like the fact that he said, you know, he talks about the ear detachment. He's like, but he's out because of concussion. You know, he got the concussion, not the ear. The ear, you know, if you have half an ear, you can play, but a concussion, you're out. And then later he adds, you know, but we're taking care of him. But it kind of makes it sound like the concussion is tied to the ear issue. It probably is because the helmet, the guy got his helmet knocked off. The side effect of, you know, losing part of your ear is that you got a concussion. What's worse, the concussion or the ear ripped off? Probably the concussion. I don't know why, but is there any way that Mike Tyson escapes being the first or second thing that everybody thought about when they heard that? No, that's definitely is, that's what everybody, kind of the penance that's definitely that, what everybody thought that Mike Tyson gets when he was, uh, you know. Well, who knows? He's probably proud of it. Do you think so? Yeah. We had Tyson on the show. Yeah, he's yeah, not a fan. You're not a fan of Mike Tyson? No. No, I and, thought he was... and I feel like we've just given him a pass. Really? Yes. Let's hear the end of the Mike Tyson interview. I, I can't. Know. I can't remember how that went. No. Let's see what happened in there. Do we really need to? Hey, it's been so long, I forgot. Really? It's been so long. Do you dream yeah, about it? It's been so long. Do you have dreams, boxing been, dreams? Listen, I'm so um domesticized now. And I'm domesticated so much now. It's hard even to think about how it would be to be in the ring now. Because I I talk to other athletes who say they still dream about sports. Do you dream about boxing? Not even a little bit. I dream about making sure I get up in time to take my daughter to school. <laughs> and and are people surprised when they my meet? My daughter's always late because we're always late, but I, <laughs> well, I mean, that's my big thing. I want to make sure she goes to school. And once my wife takes her, I got to keep my eye on the little one while she's gone, you know, and make sure the house is clean. That's, that's what's happening now. And you're happy. There's Mike Tyson. See? Now you feel bad? No. He's a convicted rapist. We just go, okay. Like, he was in, you know... He was in the hangover, though. It's fine. He was in hangover, so it's all okay. But, no, it's not okay, but, like, Carl Malone got, allegedly got, like, a 13-year-old girl pregnant, and the NBA went, welcome to the All-Star We're not talking about alleged. Like, Tyson was convicted and served time in prison for raping a beauty pageant And Malone paid off the family of the person, and, you know, he's... Father to child with a 13-year-old when he was 20. So, you know, I'm not saying either one of those is right. You're uncomfortable with it. No, you good. Just, you should be. Yeah. You should be uncomfortable with it. We all should be. A little bit. All right, leave it here. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, coming up. Strong statement in week one from Oregon State. Huge TV audience. The TV numbers are out. It was the seventh highest rated college football game of the weekend of week one. Uh, 3.2 million viewers on Sunday taking in Oregon State's season-opening win over San Jose State. I thought DJ Uyangalele looked pretty good. The defense just totally subdued San Jose State. Here to talk about it, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. Did you have a sense of how many eyeballs you were going to have on you for the game, or is that just a benefit, fringe benefit? 
Yeah, you know, we thought we had some people watching, right? I mean, the Sunday game, uh, NFL hadn't started. We were hopeful that uh, people were going to be checking out. Obviously, wasn't our number one thought and focus, but it was nice it played out the way it did. Yeah, you don't think, like, when you're getting dressed that day, you're not thinking, hey, there's going to be three million people watching me here, so i yeah. got to be in my yeah, best outfit. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a fine line, like with your players. You want them excited about playing on a big stage and people watching at the same time. That's the last thing you want them thinking about when they're getting ready and lacing up in the locker room and how many people are going to watch them. Yeah, that's a fine line because you want your guys relaxed, right? But you want them focused. You want them to uh, play loose and free, but you also want them to be task-oriented. Like, there is a uh, a little bit of a balance going on there with coaching. Are you a big pregame speech rah-rah guy, or who gives the pregame speech? Yeah, no, I, I don't give the pregame speech. I mean, I feel like the work's been done up to that point. Uh, these guys do a good job of kind of rallying together in the locker room. There's prayer before. They get a little hyped before they take the field, and I think that works just fine. DJ Uyunglele, really nice game. Five touchdowns in total, three passing, uh, two rushing. I, I thought the game plan looked – he looked like he was comfortable. How intentional was that? How did, did that unfold about as you thought it would? Well, I don't know if I thought it would. We were confident with it because a lot of what we you know, ran, plays we called in that game, were stuff we had worked on really throughout the month. I mean, this was heavy amount – of, you know, we call it fall camp install based stuff, and uh, he did. He looked comfortable out there. Uh, he contributed a little bit to the plan on what he likes the best and what, you know, what calls and stuff. And, yeah, I thought he, he, he was really efficient, knew where he was going with the ball. The protection helped him out. Run game was there. Uh, hopefully, again, we want to keep that going throughout the year. Help me out with this or help our listeners out. They're watching your games. You know, there was a couple times pre-snap I see DJ kind of pausing, coming to the line of scrimmage. It looks like he's changing the play. It looks like he's checking you guys into the right run play. What are we seeing when that's happening? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of that is exactly, you know, he calls two plays in the huddle sometimes, and he's going from one play or the other. Sometimes he's saying, more or less, we're good. We're going to call. We've got the play called, and we're going to stick with it. Uh, there's times he's adjusting a protection uh, one way to the other. Sometimes he's just... We're calling it disregard. He, he's saying a whole lot of nothing up there. doesn't mean, mm. mean anything. So there's some gamesmanship with it. Um, but he does run and pass. He's got some options if he sees a better look. We used to do that in baseball. We'd have dummy calls, you know, things that were verbal, yeah. and then the sign would come out, and it literally was, you know, did the coach have his right hand in his back pocket or his left hand? That dictated what was happening. And you see coaches on the sideline. San Jose State was playing around with – you know, they had the shield they were holding up. They had multiple quarterbacks giving signals. Like, how much of that stuff do you think is just overkill? Well, it's getting there. I mean, I will say, this was a few years ago. I won't say who, but I was confident that they were picking our signals. When I was calling mm -hmm. plays at UW, a team in the league, I, they were known for picking signals. And so you do. You get worried about that, and you want to take precautions. Uh, and we do the same stuff kind of here. We got multiple signalers from the sideline, and we got dummy signalers going, and we're saying disregard at the line of scrimmage. So, I mean, it's it's a part of it, but it's gotten. I'm not ready to bring back the shields of covering our covering our signalers.
Yeah, like because there's a level of paranoia that becomes a distraction because you want to focus on your stuff. But so when people are picking off signals, are they videotaping things and then trying to pick up tendencies, or what? How are they doing that? Getting game film? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can the TV copy some. You can get some signals from the sideline, right? They're always like flashing the head coach, and if he's by the signaler, and then from the TV copy, I got one pulled up of a game in the league right now. I'm watching off a TV copy because you can gain some information to see a signal that's not just on the on the tape of 22, um, and so you can log this stuff, but I, I think it's a little bit overkill. I, I watch the games, and by the time the offense has called a play, they're in the huddle. The defense needs to get a play called or what they're going to defend them. They don't got time to process seeing a signal and then three seconds later throw a defensive uh, call out there. Jonathan Smith with us, Oregon State football coach, 1-0 on the season. Um, I thought your defense, I mean, help me out here. I I want to say, and I know it's a small sample size, but I want to say that your defense looked as good as I've ever seen in game one, like in your era. Yeah, I, I concur. I mean, I thought we tackled really well. And that's what you're always looking at. Game one, you know, the first time doing live tackle for that many snaps, uh, they did. They played with great leverage, played team defense. I thought they executed a plan to contain the quarterback. That guy's a good player. He can run around, make plays. He can throw it. So our pass rush plan they executed really well and forced the guy sit in the pocket. Didn't give up a bunch of explosive plays in the pass game. I mean, SC, they threw the ball over their head a few times. We wanted to avoid that. And so it was. It was a really good, complete game played. Um, plenty still, like small details to clean up. And each each week, offenses in college football are different. Uh, but for, a, like I say, a first game on the road, really both sides, but defensively was really pleased with it. I'll tell you something else that felt new is I was standing on the sideline with the San Jose State athletic director before the game, and he was pointing to the stands, and he said, we're going to have a sellout today. It was their first sellout in the stadium as it's now constructed, and he pointed to the orange, and he said, look at all the visiting fans. Look at the Bay Area Beaver fans that showed up, or look at the Beaver fans that came from other places on Labor Day weekend. What does that mean to you, to look up there? Because it wasn't like that in year one or two, was it? No, no, it wasn't in year one or two. I would say the last few years, yeah, especially Bay Area, Beaver Nations traveled well. It was so awesome for our guys to take that field pregame and see so much orange in that section of the stadium. I was even talking to a couple coaches, well, if by chance this goes to overtime, we're going to play it. If we get to choose, this is the end zone we're going to play in because it was. It was packed with Beavers, and uh, glad we were able to, to get a win for all those that came down. Aiden Childs got in the game, and it was at a point when the game was kind of, you, you guys had it in hand, but he came in and he had a real drive. And ball comes out of his hand, it looks beautiful, he looks dynamic on the field. How important was it for you guys to get him a series that felt like it was a live series? Yeah, we, we definitely wanted to, and so we got the opportunity to get him in the game and not just hand the thing off the whole time. And, and he did, he threw a couple strikes, shoot first place he's in, he's moving his feet. Uh, goes to the crosser, which is kind of second in his read, throws a strike, pulls the ball on a kind of a zone read play, gets some yards, and ends up throwing another strike to tight end down the middle of the field. So that was he, – he is a good player, and we do. We want to force the issue as much as we can to get him experience because uh, the sky's the limit with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I literally in the press box, people were like, whoa, this kid's going to be good. I'm like, he's good now. Like, look, yeah. look at him now. He's, you know, and he's not – he's 17. So he, he, still, he is young, but he won't play young. I'll just tell you, he's, no. got a, he's just instinctive out there because he is so athletic. He's got a really good arm, but 
it's not just having a strong arm. He takes some off, some throws when he needs to underneath where you want to be a passer of the ball. He does it, uh, recognizes some coverage and can adjust, moves his feet. Uh, the moment hasn't been too big for him, not just in this first game, but like scrimmages and competitive situations. And and so I love his work ethic. He's well-liked on the team. He's got a lot going for him. All right, Jonathan Smith is with us. You're going to open, reopen the stadium, west side. You've seen it. Uh, you know, a lot of media have seen it, but it's going to be the first time you're going to see it with a capacity crowd against UC Davis. Like, you know, give us an idea of how cool it is to see that stadium right now. Yeah, it's fun. I'm sitting in my office right now, so I'm looking at my windows. They get the jumbotron on and the test and all that. Even at night, they're messing with the lights, right? So the lighting show and all this. Uh, getting settled, uh, actually painting and doing a little bit more on the east side here, so it's got some cool, cool look to it. It's going to be a blast. I mean, it's been a lot of work. It's been a long time coming to complete Research Stadium on the on the west side, and it'll be fully completed come Saturday when Beaver Nation packs this place and we put on a good per- performance. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys play. What do you want to get out of Week Two against UC Davis? Yeah, you know, I kind of challenge the team. We we need to improve from game one to game two. And we've got some things on tape that we uh, got exposed on. we got a punt blocked, right? We've got to tighten up that detail. There's some things that uh, on both sides of the ball that we missed that we now we've got on tape that we've got to make sure we're getting we're getting better. Uh, we want to we'll play efficient, physical ball. Our penalty end was too high. We want to tighten that up. So there's a bunch that we want to clean up and then come out with great en- energy and, and execute. Give me an idea, because I see nine penalties, and give me an idea, what, what's a good penalty, what's a bad penalty in your mind? Yeah, I think, well, I don't know if there's ever good, but <laughs> we, we will live with some penalties during the play, not before the whistle, you know, or excuse me, before the snap and, and after the whistle. We, those aren't acceptable at all, uh, but we want to play a physical, competitive, challenging brand, and on to- at times, you know, that's going to draw a flag here or there. Again, we're not... Still want to tighten up our technique and all of this, but we do want to play a brand where it's physical, and there's going to be occasions where, you know, a flag comes out during the play. I, you know, I, I kept talking all off season about the loss of leadership with Jack Coletto, Jaden Grant, some of these guys that have been around forever going out of your program. But it looks like you've got at least from game one, there were some more vocal players out there that I hadn't noticed being vocal before. Is there a guy or two that comes to mind when I say that? Did you see? some leadership in game one that you really liked? Uh, you know, I liked the offensive line. I mean, shoot, three of our captains are on that crew, and I thought they played at a high level, set the tone. Levin Good, Joshua Gray, Tolley. Um, you know, the other half captains of Catan and uh, um, Hodge did some solid things defensively. I think true leadership shows up, too, through some adversity. And let's face it, we just didn't have a ton in, in game one. I thought we handled business and all of that, and there was a maturity to that. But once this adversity comes in, it's it's coming. Uh, we, uh, we'll see how we handle that. I'm confident with the group we've got, leadership-wise, understanding that they've been around the block, seeing other leaders come through this program. And, and we've got more than just five. I mean, we've got way more than that. You should, I think I said it earlier, but on the press conference when we announced the captains, we had a bunch of guys getting votes, double digits, like 10, 15 votes for guys. we got a, a lot of guys with good influence, um, that it's their time to shine on the leadership side. You mentioned Katan Aladapo. Uh, he comes into the post-game news conference. i got to tell you, he is uh, probably the most eloquent speaker that I've ever heard in a post-game news conference in a football team. The guy, he has got it. Like I, I could see that guy being someday he could be governor somewhere. He could be a 
you know, he could be a football player, he could be an agent, he could be commissioner of the NFL. Like, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about him away from the field. Yeah, yeah great story. You know, he walked on here 2018, uh, kind of local up there outside of Portland. Um, and it took him a year or two to kind of sort things out in this classroom, on the field. You know, his, his body continues to change, get bigger, stronger. But I think he's grown to just being a mature, humble, understands kind of life outside of just, you know, football and being in the deep third and cover three. That's why I think the leadership part, the guys really respect his story because he overcame the first couple of years. He wasn't, you know, starting from the get-go. He's running on scout team. He struggled a little in school, and now he's a college graduate. Uh, He's just got a great story that guys respect. And bright orange hair to go with it. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan Smith is with us. Uh, all right, so before uh, before we end this, and I cut you loose, give me an idea because you get an opponent in this week that plays in the big sky. Ideally, you want to work through some things, but you don't want to get too deep into the playbook or get too deep in the weeds showing kind of what, what you're about, right? Like you've got bigger probably tougher games, maybe more complex games. Is that the best way to put it down the pipeline? So how do you work on stuff but not show too much? Yeah, you know, I, again, the ultimate, we, we're, we're trying to win the game. And so we put a list of plays and concepts that we think will be successful against these guys without putting too much thought of, like, oh, we're trying to hold on to this week three, week four. And I've kind of always done it that way. I'll say, though, you know, you get into some games um, where, well, maybe a player two is not needed, and then you hold on to it, and it gets saved for later. But across the country now, I mean, look at the clock rules, and the games are shortening a little bit, and you see it every year, FCS program went in, and so they've got our full attention. This is a proud group. These guys score a bunch of points. They did in their opener. You look at their last games last season, about half half of them, they're scoring close to 50 points. Um, so they got our full attention, and we're going to need to play well, and we'll use everything we can to win. All right, Coach, uh, really, really strong week one performance. I mean, it was really solid. I mean, I think when I look around the conference, conference goes 12-0 and in week one, 13-0 overall. Um, I think it's going to be that kind of year. I think it's, it's going to be a dogfight. Yeah, it was good you know, for the league in general, everybody uh, finding a way to win. And, you know, just on our end, there's no question that going on the road against a team that I thought played toe-to-toe with SE for a lot of that mm-hmm. game, and then, you know, that that program's gone to bowl games multiple years. We felt really good leaving that place, but that's a solid win to start our season and definitely want to keep it going. All right. Uh, have a good week, and uh, I will catch up to you, and, and thanks for giving us your time. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, John. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. There he is, Jonathan Smith. Oregon State football coach Beavers uh, will be hosting UC Davis on Saturday at the newly reopened and renovated Reeser Stadium. This is not like a mattress store, new grand reopening. They've actually redone the stadium, and I think it'll be a sight to see, and I hope the television coverage captures it. All right, some parting thoughts coming up. you got the BFT statewide. Good stuff from Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. Love that we're getting him on every week. Uh, great interviews on today's show. We talked uh, with the Beavers football coach, also Spencer McLaughlin, talked about Oregon's matchup with Texas Tech. Uh, later in the week, we will uh, go to Wyoming to check with Ryan Thorburn, who is also uh, uh, you know, somebody who covers Wyoming sports. He saw Texas Tech. I want to ask him how Tyler Shuck looked. I want to ask him how what his sort of prognosis is for the, uh, for the program's as uh, you're going to see this four-team tournament. Essentially, it's a four-team tournament. 
Portland State played Oregon. Now Oregon is playing Texas Tech. Texas Tech played Wyoming last week, and Wyoming's playing Portland State. So it's almost like the winners are now playing the two losers as Texas Tech got upset by Wyoming. And then uh, beyond that, we will have, um, you know, is there like now a, a winner's bracket that will come out of this or not? But uh, Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach, kind of gave us some prognosis for what he thinks is going to happen on Saturday at the end of yesterday's show. And, Stephen, were you at all surprised that Bruce Barnum kind of offered that he expects to, that, that uh, Bo Nix will be on the sideline and enjoying a, uh, a blowout victory after, uh, after uh, uh, about the third quarter. Yeah, I was a little shocked by it because, you know, he, he's a guy that would know better than most just by watching film and being out there, uh, you know, coaching every single season. And for him to go out and say that about, you know, a Texas Tech team that he just watched because Wyoming is their next opponents and then going out there and seeing him against Oregon as well, I, it is shocking because Texas Tech had a lot of hype around them at the start of the season, so it, it's interesting to hear that. But you know, you go off of what you saw in Week One as well, and it, it makes a lot of sense. Like Wyoming just didn't show up in that game against Wyoming. They got out to a big lead, and then they lost it and looked lost the rest of the game, especially in the second half and into the into the overtime. So, John, you know, I I was leaning Texas Tech at the start of the year. Even you know, if you asked me to start a Week One, who would I like? Texas Tech versus Oregon. I'd probably would have taken Texas Tech in the points. But right no, now, like I, yeah. I have a hard time thinking that that's the right play. And that Oregon's not going to go in there and win by double digits. Yeah, I th- Oregon. I think or- I think Oregon's going to go in there, and I think they are going to win handily. I think the question will be longer term for Oregon. You know, the the game. Some of the games that I had kind of circled as easier wins, like the Colorado game on September 23rd. Not so sure anymore, because Colorado doesn't look like a pushover. And it, you know, and Dan Lanning, like it or not, poked the bear a little bit with uh, Coach Prime and his program in Colorado as a community. And so I think there may be some pushback, especially from a program. Like, you don't think that, like, Dan Lanning wasn't talking about the, the Coach Prime era of Colorado football when he said, hey, what have they won? You know, when, when's the last time they mattered in the league? You know, did, not since I've been here. Like, he, he's not lying about the past. Colorado's been terrible. He's telling the truth. Like, he's not the only person that said that. But I think, you know, you're thinking about Coach Prime and this program. They're going to come out, and they are going to basically tell their players and coaches the same stuff that they've been preaching all off season. is in that, hey, it's us against the world. It's, a, uh, it's an Oregon program that, um, let's face it, is is one of the haves in major college football, playing against a Colorado program that is busy all spring and all summer telling everybody it's us against the world and everybody's out to get us, and now is telling everybody it's personal with Nebraska. Oh, you better believe come September 23rd, if Colorado can somehow get through this this Nebraska and Colorado State back-to-back, with two wins, and they are sitting at three and zero, and Oregon can get through beating Texas Tech, and and be sitting in a position where it's three and zero. You better believe the game day is coming to Eugene. Like, how do they how do they not go to Eugene after seeing the TV ratings for Colorado and uh, and TCU in Week One? Hundred percent, they'll be in Eugene, and it'll be very very fun 
because you know if Colorado is to somehow you know go undefeated and be three and zero and end up beating Oregon, you know Dion's going to be talking about that comment that Dan Lanning made. And one hundred, what, what have we won? Well, we just beat you. And you know again, Dan Lanning didn't say anything wrong. We've all said this about Colorado. We've all thought this because before Coach Prime. You know, they got to the Pac-12 title game the one year. They lose to Washington under Mac, or, uh, Mike McIntyre, and, and that's it since they've joined the Pac-12. They've been, you know, the worst team in the conference, so they haven't really won anything. And when they were rumored to be leaving to the Big 12, John, a lot of a lot of people were talking and, you know, calling in saying, well, the Pac-12's not losing anything with Colorado. Like, that doesn't move the needle because they've done nothing in the conference. So there was no lies said by Dan Lanning, and I have no problem with it. But, of course, you know, I want to see it. I want to see 3-0 Oregon taking on 3-0 Colorado. I mean, that is must-watch TV, and you know that game day is going to be there. They want to get to Eugene anyways. Perfect time to get there when Coach Prime's there. Yeah, I think that would be a huge draw. Of course, Oregon would have to beat Texas Tech and then beat Hawaii at home to set up that game with Colorado. Colorado, again, has Nebraska this week. Tougher matchup, but I kind of feel like the Nebraska – program would need Colorado to come obviously to come back down to earth but Nebraska would also need to be a little more dynamic I just didn't see it in their week one game against Minnesota it looked like 1985 Big Ten football it didn't to me have the feel of you know dynamic can you put up 40 or 50 points football but again I'm going to point back to something Keep an eye this week at uh, Nebraska because they have to be salivating looking at the run defense of Colorado. Colorado's defense gave up 7.1 yards per carry. You don't win games giving up 7 yards a carry. It was remarkable that Shador Sanders and that offense created 45 points and allowed them to get out of there with a win. Now, Colorado's going to make some adjustments, but I I guarantee you Nebraska's going to come out and say, hey, we're going to run the ball. Well, and to that point, in their Nebraska's first game, 37 rushes, 19 passes. So you know that they are going to – Matt Rule, good coach, really good coach in yeah. the college game. You he's know he's going to see that and say, we're not going to throw the ball 50 times or whatever, like 40, 50 times like TCU did. We're going to go in and try to pound the rock and slow the game down, keep Chador off the field. I think that's one of the things is we talked about the Colorado offense. If you can keep off the field, they can't score. So, you know, you know Nebraska's going to slow it down. It's going to be a contrast of styles from week one to week two for Colorado. How do they adjust to that? We'll see. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Other big games in week two. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to go to a game, Stephen. If I was sending you to a game, hypothetically, you can go to uh, Starkville, Mississippi for Arizona at Mississippi State. You can go to uh, Tempe to see Oklahoma State play Arizona State. Or you can go to Berkeley and see Cal host Auburn. Which three of those which of those three games would you love to have a 50-yard line seat for? I think Cal Auburn. And it's kind of shocking to me that that's the way it is, but I you know, we talked about the the depth of the conference. Cal looked real good against North Texas and they were running, you know, a lot of up-tempo stuff, something that Justin Wilcox doesn't do very much now. Uh, Sam Jackson, the quarterback, got injured, so they were playing the backup Ben Finley. We'll see if that happens, but you know, Cal was looking different offensively. And so I want to see how that adjusts against an Auburn team with Hugh Freeze that they're going to want to score a lot of points and get up and down the field as well. I, I think we could be into the, you know, seeing some, you know, fireworks in that game and it's going to get weird late night there in Berkeley. So I, I think I think Cal Auburn is the game I don't want to go to. Uh, another game that's got my attention, obviously Washington State hosting Wisconsin at Martin Stadium. It's going to be a big game in Pullman and certainly a Big 10 versus 
Washington State matchup. Not a Big Ten versus Pac-12. Big Ten against Washington State. Washington State not invited to the Big Ten conference. You better believe Jake Dickert's going to sell that to his team. But is Washington State good enough to pull off another win against Wisconsin? I think they're live. I think they're live in this game, John. You know, uh, Wisconsin with Luke Fickle now as the head coach, former Cincinnati coach. They want to run a little more up tempo. That's not really the style of play they've ever had. So, you know, I don't know if they're ready to do that to go on the road and play a team like Washington State in a tough environment. I, I think Washington State has a chance to win this game. And you're right, man. I, I cannot wait to see that environment and how the players react. Because, like you said, Jake Dickers is going to get those guys going and going to say, hey, "Look, this is a team in the Big Ten. They didn't want us. They don't want us here." And uh, you know, we're going to play that motivation. I think Washington State could be uh, very alive in that game. I uh, am looking forward to that one. I'm also curious about Utah going to Baylor. Uh, Cam Rising getting the green light to practice this week. Andy Ludwig, the coordinator at Utah, saying good to have Cam back. Uh, they're a different team with Cam Rising at quarterback. I think, you know, I, I have so much respect for what Kyle Whittingham and Utah's coaching staff does. Like, they are better than most at just finding a way. And I think they found a way to beat Florida in week one. If they're with Cam Rising in week two, at Baylor, look out. Uh, Big game for Utah in a huge season for the Pac-12. We'll go through all of our picks on tomorrow's show and do it again on Friday. Pick against the spread and all that. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.